refrigerator batteries and stuff. So, everything, those of you that are here, for being here, um, I'm going to do an overview of each department. Um, just going to give you a little overview of what they do, a bit about their department itself, and there'll be a little bit of time for you guys if you have any questions for that director. Um, I've got it kind of scheduled each department about 30 minutes. Um, most of their presentations vary, so some are longer than others. But um, so hopefully, I mean, I know you guys, you know, have all met with a lot of departments and you know, are a little bit into this. But um, you know, hopefully, it'll give you guys better insight to what everybody does, and um, which also helps if citizens come to you for something, you know which department to send them to or to get with. Um, so at least there's a little something in the back of your mind for that. Um, so we are starting with Human Resources, and our director is Christina. And then Jim goes over here, and you're coming in with Amber Hope. Okay. Good morning, Council, um, and happy National Wear Red Day, showing support Hi. for awareness of heart disease. Um, I'm here to present the Human Resources Department. Um, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got a little bit distracted. Okay. Sorry about that. No. Um, I'm here to present this, uh, the Human Resource Department. Um, my name is Julie Christine. I'm the Human Resources Director. I've been employed with the City of Edgewater for 28 years. Um, I've also lived in Edgewater and our sister city since 1974. I'm a graduate of New Smyrna Beach High School, go Kudas, and I have my bachelor's degree in business administration from the University of Central Florida, go Knights. I am also certified as a public human resources professional a certified supervisory manager, and a certified public manager, which I obtained from the Florida State University. Go Knowles! Um, I received and was recognized for the Safety and Risk Management Member of the Year Award in 2019 for the work my team and I do to reduce the workers' comp uh, loss ratio through training and education. I have many numerous certifications, and I'm proficient in all areas of HR-related regulations and have the resources to find the information if I don't know the answer. The Human Resources Department is a staff of three, providing assistance to 21 departments consisting of 240 employees. Our department includes myself, Brooke Appy, Human Resource Specialist, and Tanya Vanek, Human Resource Coordinator. The Human Resources Department is responsible for the city's greatest asset, its people. We are committed to providing exceptional customer service to our employees and citizens. We are accountable for directing and implementing the city's personnel programs to promote desirable and rewarding conditions of employment, assisting with the development of all personnel standards, policies, procedures, and benefit programs. Maintaining and enhancing organizational incentives that impact human resources and workforce development issues. We are responsible for the management and maintenance of all Edgewater employees' personnel files, human resource data, and confidential information. We also perform the duties of onboarding, 
new hire enrollment, pre-screenings such as background checks, drug screens, physicals, back assessments, and psyche, and psyche evaluations. We, perform, we provide separation of employee, employment, and exit interviews. We ensure compliance with discipline and termination policies and procedures by providing guidance and assistance to department directors during this process. We administer all employee benefit programs, health, dental, long-term disability, life insurance, health reimbursement accounts, health savings accounts, voluntary supplemental coverage, defined benefit and contribution pension plans, financial planning of 457 and Roth accounts, and we work heavily with our insurance broker, third-party administrators, and benefit carriers. And we prepare all insurance enrollments, updates, and re insurance renewals. On compensation and classification, we maintain the organizational's pay structure. We review, revise, and assist with job descriptions. We coordinate comparative compensation data analysis and maintain a competitive position with other comparable governmental agencies within the same geographic area. We begin the preparation of employee budget annually. We assist the finance director and the finance department with projections and various scenarios for proposed and final budget. We implement the annual wage increases and update all benefit tiers from our, with our insurance renewals. For the current fiscal year 2022-23, the HR budget is 350,564. We, we, we take pride in the involvement and communication at all levels from employees to supervisors to department directors and we believe we enhance exceptional employees through a culture of employee engagement, organizational performance, continuous improvement, and recognition that leads to overall employee motivation, productivity, and retention. We hire for attitude and we train for skill and maintain a positive values-based work environment. <clears throat> we do workers' comp, FMLA, HIPAA, and AD&D. We administer all workers' comp claims, coordinate cases with our workers' compensation insurance carrier, and ensure compliance with federal, state, local laws, regulations, and documentation requirements while monitoring employees' progress and well-being. And we also reduce risk through training and education. Preferred governmental uh, insurance trust presented this, the city of Edgewater with a $5,000 check for the preferred tips. It's a reimbursement program with matching training and safety incentives. We use this program each year to provide safety and training purchases that enhance safety measures and offer a positive impact on the community as a whole. We maintain compliance with federal acts, guidelines, and requirements that Human Resources Department encounters, as well as implementing continuous involving state and federal regulations, for example, BEO reporting, OPEB valuation data, Medicare Part D notices, FD, FDLE reports, OES for the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, reporting many reports monthly, quarterly, and yearly. On labor relations activities, I assist the city manager with ne the negotiation process to ensure all collective bargaining agreements are sustainable 
fiscally responsible, and adapted to ever-changing programs and policies. We promote a healthy and safety workforce and encourage wellness through, through our benefits fair, personal health assessments, monthly health topics, quarterly blood pressure checks, wellness action team meetings with Florida Healthcare, bi-monthly blood drives, flu shot clinics. We provide these tools and techniques to ensure employee health and wellness are a priority. In addition, we attend job fairs at different locations and are involved with community support, being guest readers during Literacy Week and door judging during Red Ribbon Week at Indian River Elementary School. For some added fun and for boosting morale and getting to see more of the department team members, we organize the annual holiday breakfast, employee luncheons, and some retirement parties. We are an accessible department. We work together to foster a positive environment while supporting the goals and objectives of the city of Edgewater. We are your HR team, and we are always here to help. Thank you. Any questions? No, you guys are very busy. <laughs> you wear many hats. <laughs> Happy Friday, everybody. I guess my only question is, do sure. each of you um, have like a specific thing? Like usually I talk to Brooke about insurance and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. does she normally do all the insurance or is that just who I catch every time? No. So Brooke does um, workers' comp and all insurance benefits. Okay. So she's like like um, the insurance benefits specialist. That's why that's her title is the specialist. Okay. She's actually my number two. Tanya does a lot of the enrollment um, filing, scanning, um, some of those reports um, she does. We're a very, very, very busy department. But we all are, the whole city. We have a great team here. All the directors are extremely busy, and we do our best to provide um, the best for the citizens and the residents of our community. Julie, I have a question. Um, sure. You have three teams and 21 departments. How many employees? 240. And the three of you take care of Well, we, we, we assist those departments, yes. Okay. And nothing else? Thank you. I'm good. <clears throat> Appreciate all you do. Thank you so much. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks for, thanks for this. And happy, happy National Red Wear Shirt Day. Next up, we have finance. Oh, I need to switch to PowerPoint out. I did get the other one you sent. So good morning, Mayor and Council. I'm glad that you are here this morning uh, for this orientation sessions. Uh, I thought it was a great idea, you know, to be able to just give a high level. Keep in mind, <clears throat> I have kept it very high level um, in anticipation of 
um, you know, having all of the other departments be able to present in their magnitude and, you know, all of their um, needs. So I try to keep it high level. There's so much that I could have added, but um, I was trying to keep it simple. So, so good morning. <clears throat> My name is Bridget Vassier. I'm the finance director here with the city of Edgewater. Um, I've actually um, lived in the city of Edgewater for 30 years now. I grew up military, so I traveled the world prior to settling here in Edgewater. Um, I've got my bachelor's degree from UCF, and I received my master's degree through Nova Southeastern University. Um, I've got over 20 years of governmental auditing and accounting experience. I started out with a local CPA firm doing audits of local government entities, um, and then I went on to work with two other government entities prior to coming to the city of Edgewater. I've been with the city of Edgewater about seven years now, so came Full, full circle to my hometown to put my skills to good use for my hometown. So finance team, I wanted to get an updated picture, but uh, time did not allow for that. So this is just kind of the listing of all of the individuals within finance department and information technology. Um, we have currently 17 employees. Um, so between accounting, budgeting, utility billing, customer service, information technology, we have quite the um, group. And honestly, the, the demands on our department are ever increasing with the growing population, um, growing reporting requirements. So I expect that this will be increasing over the next few years. So the finance department, overall, we provide fiscal management for the city of Edgewater. We work with all of the departments within the city of Edgewater. We work with our customers. Um, we provide all sorts of reporting to management and to mayor and council to make informed decisions. Um, we also work with other public agencies. Um, within our department, um, I'm just going to skip to the next slide because it actually was a little bit redundant there. Okay. So finance department, we include all aspects of accounting, budget, accounts payable, accounts receivable. Uh, we have banking and investments to monitor and track. We have business tax, tax receipts, revenues, debt issuance and administration, grants compliance, monitoring and assistance to administering these grants, uh, information technology, payroll, uh, which includes over 200 employees. Um, we make sure that we are paying in accordance with union contracts, Fair Labor Standards Act. We have our purchasing department, which keeps us compliant with Florida statutes and our purchasing policies. We have utility billing and customer service. So within the realm of accounting and budgeting, we have fund accounting, which includes the general fund, capital projects, debt service, special revenue, internal service funds, and enterprise funds. Uh, we collaborate with all departments in creating the annual budget, as well as with our auditing needs and reporting. The citywide fiscal year 23 original budget was $63,518,094. Currently, the amended fiscal year 23 budget is $102,900,849. So the big jump, major capital projects that were in the works from prior year approved budget 
that rolled forward. Uh, we prepare quarterly unaudited financial and department reporting. We have all sorts of state reporting that is required. Um, they continue to add to that various um, economic development reporting, uh, financial reporting to the state. We work with our independent auditors on an annual basis. We are in the midst of working with our auditors right now on our annual, annual comprehensive annual reporting. We had to recently change the acronym for that. It was found offensive to some. So after 20 some odd years of one acronym, I'm now trying to just say it out loud. <laughs> annual financial report. Um, <clears throat> our utility billing and customer service group, amazing team. They, um, they take on so much. It is so much more, you know, from the cashiers up front to the customer service on phones all the way to the utility billing. Um, very, very high level, very, um, very busy department. They're always answering customer service phone calls. They're working with the utility customers trying to help resolve any issues they may have. Um, we currently have approximately 12,000 utility customers. Um, quickly growing. Uh, I see constantly certificate of occupancies come through to utility billing on a daily basis. Uh, so we are ever growing. We have two utility billing cycles each month. Um, and again, they're, they're constantly assisting with phone calls, emails. They're posting payments to customer accounts. Cashiers up front do so much more than just handling the customer payments. They're answering questions. They're directing them to other departments if questions arise. They're handling other revenue receipts coming in. Um, so very multitask, very, um, very high demand. Uh, they're also setting up new accounts. They're processing service tickets uh, for the field crew. So they work very closely with all the field, field crew. Um, amazing group out in that department as well. Uh, so very, very proud to work with the team that we have in place. Information Technology Department, um, they are an internal service fund. They help all of the departments with their technology needs. They make sure that we have the necessary equipment and tools related to information technology, phone systems, computers, software, those types of things. Um, they are also in charge of the GIS function, which is geographic information systems. The wonderful maps that you see online, that um, is all handled within that department. Um, and again, you know, providing assistance to all the, all the departments. What's that? Some more than others. Some more than others, absolutely. I know um, it's amazing how they, they are so good and responsive. You're calling them up, hey, my computer just froze up. Well, I've never seen that before is what I normally get. <laughs> I've got the anomalies. And, <laughs> and, and Jack knows that too. Yes, yes. Yeah, so they help somewhere than others. And we do, we do have some pretty. Me that story. <laughs> <laughs> we have some pretty intense um, accounting software programs and what have you. So there's always some some weird anomaly that's like, okay, look, we have to get this project done like yesterday. Help, help, help. So they're they're amazing um, in their responsiveness. And, and we different programs too related to what we do. Yeah. So 
they have to know something about all of them. So Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Records, documents, storage, utility billing, accounting. Yeah, it's they have different programs. They have yeah. The radios, they, they assist with any of the radio needs for public safety. Yeah, it's... Have you guys ever had a hacking problem or issue yet? Not to my knowledge, but we do have some pretty extensive... Yes, knock on wood, we have some pretty extensive um, security measures in place. Um, Jack has been working very diligently on the newest and latest um, security features. The training that is going to be going out, I'm sure some of you have received some emails... Um, we did some testing recently. Um, so Jack stays very on top of all of the latest and greatest in security. Um, we do have redundancies in place and backups to our systems. So um, I, I'm very confident in what we have in place. But I do hear stories every so often on, you know, individuals and companies that are getting hacked. So, you know, always mindful. I think we touched on, yeah, computer network administration, software, telecommunications, website support, utilities, technical support, just an amazing group. Um, again, I tried to keep it very high level. Um, I, could, I could spend days and days and weeks with you um, going into what all goes on in the finance world. Um, I do try to make myself available. If you ever have questions on anything, utility billing, customer service, financial-related uh, budget. <clears throat> we are about to go full swing into the budget process. So um, at any time, if you have any questions, I try to make myself available. Please don't hesitate to reach out. You should all have my contact information. And um, we'll open it up for any questions. Well, I do have a question. Um, you said that we have two billing cycles for the water department. So I know it's like, like mine is the fifth. So it's like the... The beginning of the month, and there's there's another one in the mid month for um, different people. Right. <clears throat> so actually, in in the computer system itself, it shows as four cycles. But we because we have two dates that the major bills go out. So on the 14th and the 28th of each month, all of the bills go out. Um, I don't know if any of you had recently seen that we had that email hiccup with our printing company recently. We're hoping to get that resolved very quickly but we were able to send out a notification via email to all those that we had email billing going out to to reach out to them and let them know, hey, we did have a little hiccup. Please, you know, reach out for any additional information that they needed. So, absolutely. Yes, ma'am. Any other questions? No? Well, thank you all for all that you do and for communicating with our citizens. Um, you all are, are greatly appreciated as well. Thank you. I figured they would need it. <laughs> <coughs> Services next with our director Randy Fazio and Deputy Director Jessica Coleman. Good morning. Here's my lady friend. <laughs>
I'm left-handed, so of course I don't. <laughs> <laughs> that other microphone's not turned on yet, so no, you can just, just turn it on. <clears throat> All right. Well, good morning, Mayor and Council. I'm Randy Coslow. I'm your Director of Environmental Services. I'm also the City Engineer, the only professional engineer employed by the City. I uh, did not prepare a resume slide because I was planning on talking mostly about the department. But to not be out of step with the other directors, I'll give you a little bit about myself. I was born and raised in Holly Hill here in Volusia County, graduate of uh, Mainland High School. Go Bucks! I didn't go far from home to go to college. I went to Melbourne, the Florida Institute of Technology, where they trained a bunch of people for the space industry. Um, I decided to follow a path of chemical engineering and uh, graduated from there. Go Panthers! Uh, so I have been involved in the engineering world, first in private consulting for two different companies, serving only municipal clients focused on stormwater, wastewater, uh, potable water, that side of things, reclaimed water, uh, since 2006. So what is that, 17 years of experience? Eight years of that has been with the city of Edgewater, first as deputy director, and then uh, for the last approximately year as director. Um, and Jeff Thurman has been here for about a year. Could you give a little background about yourself? Yes, good morning. Uh, Jeff Thurman, Deputy Director of Environmental Services. We work with cities here in Plymouth. We uh, were with them before that. I worked for the Mainland Environmental Services Department for about 17 years. I mainly was a road operator for I didn't know you went to Liberty. There we go. All right. So we are the largest department in the city. Uh, I've always had a walking around number of saying we are half the city workforce and we spend about half of the city's annual budget. From what I just heard from Julie and from some efficiencies that we made in our department over the last couple of years, we're actually closer to about 40% of the city workforce. That's still by far the largest department. Um, we have nine different divisions within the department. Um, generally, we can group them in terms of what we call public works and utilities. Um, we will get more into that as we go, but we've got all the big Tonka trucks, all the fun toys in our department. You know. Our facility location, shown on the map, are the we'll say the buildings are the most obvious places that you would see as you drive by. Although the water plant out there by 95, you have to go looking for it. And everybody up there, um, you've been out there. And uh, the Southeast Booster Station, you also have to go looking for that one, but it's out there. The uh, Air Park Staging Yard, that's normally where we you know, prepare for the parade and whatnot, didn't this year because obviously it was occupied, which is what we use it for, for uh, clearing the debris off the right-of-way from Hurricane Ian. 
we, you see the big mounds of dirt out there. Dirt goes a long way in what we do. We dig holes, we fill holes, we clean ditches, we, you know, dig ditches. We do a lot of that work. And so that's a lot of our operating materials that we store out there. Not shown, or maybe also shown on there, every right-of-way in between those, we maintain everything that's from property line to property line, above ground and below. Um, with a few exceptions, obviously state roads and county roads are not the cities to maintain. That's the state and the county, respectively. But we are responsible for 130 miles of right-of-way. Um, I guess this is getting into a later slide, so we'll save that for later. Um, our organizational structure, next slide, starts with our bosses, the residents. We have 24,000 bosses, uh, and obviously the mayor and council and the city manager were responsive to all of that. Flows through myself and Jeff. The administration division of environmental services is comprised of utilities director Ken Tripp and public works, excuse me, not director, division manager, and uh, Public Works Division Manager Sean Maroney. Both of them have also been here for about a year. Those were newly created positions not too long ago. Um, and you've probably also spoken with Tyna Hilton, Danielle Young, and maybe you've spoken with Katie Priestley. She's been working with us for about a month now, a month. and she's getting married today or tomorrow. So she's not here today, but for good reason. Um, so that is the, the office, if you will. Uh, utilities consists of four divisions. That is the water treatment plant. That's Bob Palizzi. Uh, the wastewater treatment plant is, uh, the plant manager is Matt Hickson. Wastewater collections, we have a new superintendent there. There was an internal promotion that occurred. Uh, that's Todd Schneider. And uh, field operations is supervised by Bobby Copeland. Uh, sort of in the same vein, public works, there's four different divisions there. That's our public well, it's called in the budget public works, but we call it streets. Uh, that's Tom Smith is the supervisor over that department. And then we've got the refuse team leader, Grant White, and the public works team leader, Jeff Hall, who's over stormwater. We've also got uh, Bob Isamone, who's the superintendent over fleet. And as you know, our uh, fleet barn services everything in the city if it's got a motor, and as Jeff mentioned yesterday when I typed that on the slide, he said, they even take care of things that don't have motors, <laughs> from a weed whacker to a semi-truck and everything in between. All right. Currently, I was looking at this and I said, you know, that's the best that we've looked in a long time as far as filled positions, uh, especially during COVID and whatnot. We had a lot of vacancies. We were at 50% uh, staffing in our refuse department and, uh, not that long ago, so I'm glad to see this. We still have about one out of every six positions is vacant, but it is at least now spread throughout the different divisions. We do want to fill those. We're working on filling them. In fact, there's actually sort of more vacancies in the field operations division than what's shown because of some internal promotions and whatnot where we're waiting on schooling to get the actual licenses and all that. It's about 90 positions total within our department. Um, we, I like to say we're the everyday department. You don't think about us necessarily every day, but you engage with our responsibilities every single day. Yes, Mr. Mayor. So relating to staffing, <clears throat> what are the requirements, say, if someone wanted to be in the water department, or do you have to start somewhere else, work your way up, or how does that work typically? So are you talking about water treatment? 
just the water department that you have on here, you have one vacancy open. Yes. Okay. So wastewater, our preference, any one of them. Our preference is to hire individuals that are already state licensed as treatment operators. That's not always possible. You know, it takes uh, a full year on the job, taking a, um, a vocational schooling and, and passing a state test in order to get those licenses. We're coming up on a slide that talks about all the various licenses that are held by all the positions our professionals uh, have. What we have found is that sometimes it's faster, better, and creates more uh, loyalty and retention if you start with a recruit and start with somebody who doesn't have the license. And then while they're with you, you get to evaluate, frankly, their competency, their abilities. They get their time on the books towards that license. When they pass the schooling and the state test, they're classified as a trainee, which is a small bump in pay. And then when they actually have the full time on the books and everything they need to qualify for the license, that's when they get the larger increase in pay as a treatment plan operator. We try to grow our own. Uh, Julie yeah. mentioned about hire, hire for attitude and train for skill. That's kind of our, our philosophy in, in, in those operations. It's worked very well for us. Both treatment plants um, have faced a generational change. We'll see on an uh, upcoming slide. Both plants were constructed 30 years ago. Their city did have previous treatment plants before that. But, you know, anytime you construct a, a new, larger facility, you need more staff. A lot of those... 30-year-ago employees are now uh, retiring. The water plant over the last, say, five or six years has gone through pretty much that transition. And as Jeff mentioned, we were very successful with, um, with bringing in people that didn't quite have their licenses and training them up to get their license. So that's been very good. The wastewater plant, we're just starting that transition, or, or if you want to say we're sort of in the middle of it. So we, We've got a, a fairly new... Uh, manager of the wastewater plant very progressive and taking care of his staff and promoting that uh, we're excited about that yeah that we're not excited about the others but uh, in that transition we're very excited about that he just had a baby so we expect him to be <laughs> a while longer yes <laughs> um did i answer your question mr mayor I know somebody that was working with the city of Edgewater that started on the back of a garbage truck and worked his way to a different department. Is that typically something that you work towards, or do you work towards hiring an outside individual? We prefer internal promotion as much as we possibly can. Right. Um, if you will, we get the longest job interview out of doing an internal promotion. Uh, like you heard Julie say, and like Jeff just repeated, you know, you hire for the personality and train for the skill. Not everybody will adapt to all the skills that are out there, but our uh, water plant manager himself was exactly what you just mentioned. He started on the back of the garbage truck, and you know he's been the water plant manager out there for say about 12 years or thereabouts. Awesome. Um, so yeah, we, we prefer that. Um, that's not always possible. You know, it's not always what's optimum. So you know, it's not always the path that we take, but it is that is what we prefer to do. Great. Gotcha. <clears throat> Next slide, please. Licenses. We carry a lot of licenses. I guess if you add that all up, it's about 100, a little over 100 licenses uh, throughout our department. Obviously, some people have multiple. Um, Jeff, in particular, you have both the uh, certified public works manager and the uh, uh, CPM. Yeah, yeah. Who floor the state. 
Uh, I'm the uh, professional engineer. Uh, we've got, as we mentioned, the water plant operators and wastewater plant operators. Uh, water distribution, that's a state license. Schooling, time on the books, all that. All of these are, you know, it's not just a person driving, if you will, a vehicle. These are professional employees that have been educated in what they're doing, and they have the licenses and credentials to, to back that up. Um, I, I don't really want to read off the whole slide <laughs> either. Our wastewater plant and our water plant are staffed 24-7, 365. It doesn't matter how bad the uh, wind is blowing, they're there. Uh, everybody else in our department is uh, Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 3.30. Uh, the only difference on that is our uh, in field ops, our service call technician, the one who responds to uh, water complaints and other things, they work a schedule that allows for more of that customer engagement, is more responsive to when uh, finance department utility billing gets calls about check for leaks or this or that. So we have a slightly modified <laughs> schedule for that. Um, after all hours, we have 24-7 coverage for our um, public works on-call phone, field operations on-call phone, wastewater collections on-call phone. Um, so basically during the day, if you call our customer service line, that's extension uh, 4007, typo on that. Um, or if you call uh, finance customer service, that's extension 4000. Um, but then if it's after hours, that'll either roll over or you call directly to the on-duty water plant operator. Um, oftentimes, I'd say about half of the times that after hours water plant operator, it's a one-man shift or a one-person shift. So most of the time, they're going to be out doing stuff, operating the plant. If you call and it rings and goes to voicemail, please leave a message. When that operator gets back in at the seat to listen to the messages, they dispatch the appropriate person. That might be me or Jeff, or that might be the people that are carrying the on-call phone. Um, so we're, we respond all the time, and very frequently, if one person gets the call, they call other people, a whole crew shows up because oftentimes whatever's broken, if it needs a fix, it needs fixed then. Uh, stewardship of a lot. <laughs> um, there's a whole lot of numbers on there. One of the you know biggest takeaways is the 25 miles of canals and 130 miles of roads. The water pipes and wastewater pipes, reclaimed pipes, all of that exist within those roads. 118 miles of paved roads, 12 miles of shell roads, and we just recently, this past year, were able to do a, we'll call it in-between, chip sealing gravel treatment on about a mile and a half of road. That was a really, really cost-effective um, surface change. It is, we'll say, halfway in between a dirt road or a shell road and a asphalt paved road, but it lays the base for a future paving, and it really reduces our maintenance. When we completed that chip sealing project, um, the public works superintendent said, you just gave me a full-time employee because now he doesn't have to be on a tractor box plating these roads for 30 hours plus per week. Um, so that was, I would like to be able to keep doing that. That was a very good project that we just finished. Um, highlight on that. Fleet takes care of, like I said, everything in the city with a motor. We have over 100 cars, trucks, uh, and SUVs. 
15 tractors on down, every stationary uh, generator at all the different city facilities. Um, so there's, there's a lot that we do. I wouldn't have it any other way. I love that. How we identify and assign work. Uh, Jeff, why don't you go through this slide, please? You, uh, Randy has um, mentioned how you can contact us. What happens after we get the information? And this slide kind of shows that we uh, receive from phone calls, our, our trackees, um, request system, uh, email, direct emails, inspections we do in the, in the field by employees or as directors and managers, uh, routine maintenance, whether it be canal maintenance, um, valve turning, et cetera. That all goes to the managers and supervisors. They collect that data and they actually prioritize what work co comes in as well as what they have in backlog and the routine maintenance. And then they, dis they give that to the staff to um, tackle and accomplish. So it's kind of the workflow, um, the 30,000 foot level of how we receive, who we receive it from, and how the work is uh, passed on to staff to accomplish. Thank you. All right, streets and stormwater. I like showing pictures of the Menzi because it's a cool instrument. It's the only tool that can do the kind of job that we need it to do. If you're aware of something else, please tell me because for as much good as it does, it's also pretty rough on those sandy banks on the canals that are out there. Uh, just yesterday, we were meeting with the engineers working on the Florida Shores Canal Armoring Project, talking in great detail about um, how we can improve the design of those canals and possibly uh, use a different type of machinery to clean them. You're always going to need some machinery that can get in the canal to clean them because literally our city depends on these canals. Could uh, you <coughs> email us about that or either go through that process as you're just talking what about. What would you like to, to see, Mr. Mayor? Well, you, you just stated that you had, you were going to do something about the Florida Shores canals and what equipment you used. I'd like to know a little bit more about that. Okay. Because I think that's the number one question coming from our residents right now is what we're going to do with our stormwater moving forward. Okay. I will say that the engineers are still in design on that. Um, we had a, I guess this is ahead of their 60% submittal on their engineering and still very, <coughs> I'll say, uh, wide-ranging options. Just pretty much, I'm sure, keep us in the loop if you, if you could. That would be great. Okay. Um, if it's okay with you, we're expected to receive the 60% um, the submittal in, what did we say, it was about a month, three about weeks, month. somewhere of course, in there. Of course. Uh, if it's okay with you, I'd like to share that with you at that deliverable time period. Is that yeah, okay? that, that'd be great. Okay. Whenever you hear something, just keep me, or I'm sure these council members would like to as well in the loop. Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, we will we'll make a note of that. Awesome, thank you. All right. Uh, sign maintenance, mowing and uh, string trimming, weed whacking, tree limbs, vines, the bucket truck, all that kind of stuff, pothole repair, basically everything that makes the streets and the, the drainage system function. Um, we've talked about fleet. The next slide. 
didn't really put any pretty pictures on there, but they run a very professional shop. Uh, one of the things to mention is that fire and police equipment gets prioritized whenever that comes in. Um, we only have three bays, and so when that happens, you know, other people sit and wait, and that's understandable. I mean, they are the emergency response uh, front line. Um, they do field repairs. They do everything that needs to be done at all the different facilities. They manage the city's fueling operation. Um, next slide, please. Refuse collection. I want to talk about this here. So um, there's, they currently run seven routes, which is uh, appropriately sized for the 10,500 accounts, which is almost all residential. Uh, you know, you're either on a Monday, Thursday, twice a week route, or a Tuesday, Friday, twice a week route. When we rolled out those blue city-provided containers, uh, we provided three different sizes, 95, 65, and 35s. The 95 and 65 size cans work very well for our operations. The 35-gallon cans are, um, they require more, we'll call it manpower, to, to collect those. So we can't phase them all out. They're the right size for some applications, for some individual people. But we try to steer people towards using either a 95 or a 65-gallon can where we can. It just makes more efficiencies in our department. Um, any of the clean green waste that we pick up, with some exceptions, if it's a limb here and there, we mix it in, we go. It's more important to be efficient than it is to be you know, uh, entirely separate. Uh, but as much as we can when we get a truck full of clean green waste, we take that to a local business, to um, Paul Ames, the NSB Recycling on West Park Avenue here. Everything else goes to the county's landfill. Uh, the county is going to be increasing their tipping fees starting in October. They're, and this is the first increase in almost 20 years. Almost I mean, 20 about years. About 17 years. So we knew it was coming at some point. They were keeping their prices low for a long time. It's going up 10% on what's called class one, which is your regular garbage, and it's going up quite a bit on class three, which is your um, dry goods, you know, your construction demolition, your bagged and contained uh, yard waste and whatnot. They're increasing that to where it's equal in price to the class one uh, tipping fee, so it makes even less sense to try to send a separate truck just for that class three garbage. Um, so. Because of that, because of other efficiencies and whatnot and how we're running things, we will be, coming soon, ending the Wednesday collection, and we're going to be cleaning the streets, if you will. We're going to be picking up everything that's on the streets by the end of the week. Thursday and Friday is when we're going to be making sure that all the bulk and separate goods will be picked up and in the truck. We're saying Thursday and Friday because those are our lighter days. People put twice the garbage out on Monday, Tuesday than they do on Thursday, Friday. We're... If you hear any talk about uh, converting to 410s, that's what we're in the process of because currently they haul to the city's transfer station at the public works yard and park the truck and go home. They're in transition to direct haul to the landfill. That um, transfer station is basically obsolete. It's a relic of the past. So I just wanted to update you on those changes happening. I think it's going to be a crazy amount of <clears throat> money difference. No, I don't, really don't think so. You mean as far as with the tipping fee increase? Well, yes, that is going to impact things. Um, but as far as operationally how we're doing it, um, I mean, that, if you will, that's a baked-in cost. We, 
we can't change that. The tonnage that we receive is the tonnage sure. we have to deposit. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I feel really good about operationally how we're progressing in that department and how we're, we're changing things. Okay. Um, I think it's, it's becoming more efficient. We're trying to address that, get out in front of it proactively through efficiencies, mm -hmm. knowing that financially it's going to be an impact. We used to have every truck with three employees on it. Um, back during COVID time, we were able to make some efficiencies in that, and we were able to get the larger trucks to where we only needed to staff them with two employees on it. We have just got our first side loader, which, you know, the, the, the claw, if you will, um, that is only staffed with one employee. Employees are expensive. The equipment's also expensive. But employees are definitely a very expensive um, component of the operation. So we, we want to go to as streamlined as possible to still give the comprehensive service that we give to our residents. Um, and I, I know with the new trucks with the, that they, um, they, help, they help the employees so we're not doing as much working comp now because, um, because of the new equipment. Yeah. The, those can flippers that we put on the back, we had a spade in there where it seemed like, man, we were just hurting people's shoulders and hurting people's backs. You know, it, we said, what, what happened? You know, it's the same garbage. Why all of a sudden are we getting all these injuries? So we even retrofitted our older trucks that we knew were slated for, you know, going to the auction. We put can flippers on there because we don't want to hurt our employees, you know. Um, and, yeah, that has helped. Well, that truck will still hurt your back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's still a very physical job, mm -hmm. and that's why for the that position, um, HR sends them through a rigorous back assessment back and assessment. physical assessment, you know, before we hire them. They have to get, you know, good marks on all those before we bring them on. I have a question. Do we, um, are all the, um, uh, the, the trash guys, mm -hmm. um, are they all uh, employees, or do we sub some of that out? We, it's all of our drivers are city employees. We supplement for any vacancies and any um, lack of staffing with day laborers. It has never been our goal to depend on day laborers as part of that function. We have been making frequent use of the day labor option for the last know, four or five years or so, but that's never been the goal to remain that way. Um, you heard me say a couple of years ago, we were at 50% staffing in garbage. We still have to pick up the garbage. So we were depending, I think we were uh, seven day laborers every day to pick it up at one point. I mean, that was, that was a lot. Fortunately, with, you know, Julie's help, the classification and compensation study really helped to recruit more drivers in there. Um, we, we made efficiencies in the department, both with the equipment and with, you know, how we staff things so that we're able to get more done with city staff. And those day laborers do not drive, will not drive. They can't drive. Yeah, we don't put them. Yeah, they don't yeah. have the license. Right. Something else we found is, you know, our uh, refuse employees operate on what's called task. Once they get all the city picked up, what else are you going to have them do? If it's all picked up, they're done, they go home. If that takes them seven hours, we still pay them for the eight-hour day. You know, if we're changing to four tens, it's equivalent, but you know what I'm saying. Once their job is done, they go home. Day laborers don't have that incentive. So we found that sometimes we're paying that driver to stay out there because that day laborer knows that he might be able to get another hour in his 
his check if he goes a little slower. So it's it's not ideal for the city. You know? So we're still hiring for that for that position as we saw earlier. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All those red positions on that, all the vacancies, those are all needed functions that we want to fill. As we get in the uh, side loader trucks, we're supposed to get two more in in October. Correct. We placed the order for them a few months ago, all the production time. Um, we, through all of this transition, we have never laid anybody off. We have, there's been openings, there's been other places where people have voluntarily uh, taken other opportunities within the city, and that gives us an opportunity to, to close out that position. You know, it, we do not intend to uh, do any kind of forced layoffs. Uh, field operations. Boy, Wire 3 and AT&T. <laughs> they have given us a lot of headache out there with emergency main repair. They have exceeded our capabilities with staff for doing utility locates that are required by the 811 Sunshine One Call system. Um, Bonnie, how are we doing on time? I, I kind of need to speed it up. Okay, I got a lot more divisions to talk about. <laughs> yeah, okay. okay, all right, I'll try to speed it up. Yeah, these are the people I love. So I could talk about my friends and coworkers all day long. You know, um, they so field operations is responsible for everything from the meters, the pipes, the repair. Uh, it's not just pressure pipe. When there's a sewer break, they're jumping in the hole too. Um, the field operations and wastewater collections department work. I'll say hand in hand, but they wash their hands first. Uh, they work very closely together. Uh, backflow prevention, cross-connection control, highly specialized. These are the people that are <coughs> closest to, you know, the actual point of delivery to the consumers for the treated water, the treated wastewater. Um, these are the people that keep our city healthy. Wastewater collections. Next slide, please. Um, lift stations. We have 54, 55 lift stations. That is the moving parts of the sewer collection system. They are high voltage uh, electric pump stations. They have sophisticated telemetry to let us know, you know, when things are having problems or when things are operating correctly. Um, we, as uh, Councilman Dabo, you and I have talked about fats, oil, and grease control. Uh, make sure you don't flush what you shouldn't flush. Even if it says flushable wipes, they're not flushable wipes. City of Baltimore is suing Johnson & Johnson over that uh, misleading labeling. Uh, the manholes, the sewer lines, they all need to be cleaned. We respond when there are power outages. We wait just a minute to make sure FPL isn't going to turn it back on in the next half hour. But if it's a persistent power outage, we got to get out there and uh, deploy a mobile generator to ensure that lift station keeps working. We do have budgeted in current year and in previous year for uh, to increase our site um, standby power generators. We have the generators. We now need to get contractors in to set these at five of our Florida Shores lift stations so that those one more thing that the on-call person's phone doesn't ring in the middle of the night. We have five ready to go. We have yes. We just received delivery of them, and that's how we staged this. We knew that the lead time on the production of the generators would be lengthy. So we ordered them, I think it was, might have even been last fiscal year. We've just received delivery of them, so now we're going to basically get a contractor on board to set them and put them in place. Um, wait a minute, those aren't generators, they're bypass pumps. They're bypass. Okay. Same thing. Okay. It's when the power's out, these work. They work. Yeah. <laughs> um, our sewer system, 
big picture, about round number 30% of our sewer system was built 60 years ago out of materials that were perfect for the time, but that are 60 years old and in dire need of replacement. That's the Riverside Drive um, sewer lining that you've been seeing for years and is still going on right now. We're focusing on from Riverside up the hill, as it were, you know, from the lowest sewers, the lowest elevations on up, because you get a lot of what we've called I and I, infiltration inflow, groundwater coming in. About half of the city's sewer system was built in the early 90s throughout Florida shores. Um, that's 30 years old now. You know, things need maintenance, things need uh, what they call life cycle repair. Um, that's some needs that we have, that's kind of the focus, if you will, of that department. Water treatment. Built 30 years ago, 5 MGD, 5 million gallon per day facility, situated as far west as we could go at the time. Um, staff 24-7, we pull from a groundwater source, as does everybody, really, in Florida. Um, we have a very high productive aquifer, but we have a well field that's closer to the coast than some of our neighbors. We get more uh, tannins, more you know remnants of basically how the water was produced in there. And so we see some color as you know people have approached the, the council to discuss. In order to remove that color, it would take another process. Um, the simple way to remove the color results in water chemistry that would violate our very strict uh, EPA permit limits. If we want to remove the color while staying within that, it would cost millions of dollars per year both in construction and in operating. And I didn't feel like that the change in the aesthetic um, nature of the water was worth the increase in utility bills. So if council feels otherwise, we can approach that, but it's very costly. Um, at some point, we're going to need to upgrade, replace, change out completely our treatment process. That's a more suitable time to look at the you know, those aesthetic concerns. Twice a year we do a free chlorine burn. We do that in May and October, just before summer and just after summer, um, to make sure that our pipes are clean and um, any growth that happens to occur, you know, microbiological growth, gets flushed out, gets cleaned out of the pipes. Um, we have our water quality technicians work out of our water plant so they have, you know, ready access to the lab and all of that for samples. Um, they also do all of our unidirectional flushing throughout the year. Wastewater plant. Next slide, please. Built same time, uh, 2.5 million gallons per day capacity. It's currently flowing about 1.5. Um, you know, that changes by the amount of rainfall in a year. Um, in 2012, after it was about 20 years old, we did a <coughs> rehab project. There's a lot more moving parts in wastewater treatment. You've all toured this facility. You know it's a much more complex facility than the water plant. Slide increase to 2.75. When our daily sewage flow reaches, it's around 2 million. I forget the exact number. We are required, when it's 70% of capacity, we're required to begin design on an expansion. With the growth that we're seeing, the growth that we're forecasting, we uh, expected an expansion will need to be under construction within about 10 years, depending on how growth happens. Um, it's a state-of-the-art plant. Uh, we do have a surface water discharge. As you can see, we only use it as little as we need to. 
um, most of our effluent goes out through public reuse. It does exactly what it's good for, watering grass. Uh, administrative support, we do a lot in the office. I don't think I really want to read every bullet point on here. There's no pretty <laughs> pictures. <laughs> uh, operating budgets. Like I said, we spend about half of the city's dollars. Um, a lot of that is in water, wastewater, and refuse. You interact with these things every single day. The roads you drive on, every time you turn on the faucet, what comes out and what goes down, um, every day. Active capital projects, I'll conclude on this. These are the active ones. We have other capital projects that are in various stages of planning also. Hard Avenue drainage uh, and water main improvements. Councilwoman Gillis, this is right in your neighborhood. Um, they've recently begun construction activities on that. Um, they're under a relatively tight time frame for all the work they need to get done. So you're going to see a lot of crews tearing up a lot of the roads and inconveniencing a lot of traffic for about the next six or seven months or so out there. But once they're done, the water mains are all going to be upgraded. The drainage is all going to be upgraded. It's a really good project. It's been 10 years in the making. Um, grant funded to about the tune of uh, $1.8 million from the, um, from the state. The G2, G11 canal improvements, that's in the very, very early stages. We got a $14.8 million grant on that, and that is for basically Hart Avenue all the way up to McDonald's, that G2 canal. It was a hand-dug ditch that was put in, you know, never really engineered well, but a lot of people depend on that to keep their homes free of, of floodwaters and stormwaters. Um, so that's in the very early stages. That'll probably be under construction the next maybe three or four years, two to three years, something like that. Lift station rehabs, that's every year. We've got two active right now. One is just wrapping up here on Riverside. Another one is probably within a couple of months of ready to uh, break down for construction out at Wildwood Subdivision by Rotary Park. Um, and then we have budgeted in current fiscal year for two or three other lift stations that need rehabilitating. Two-inch water line replacements. We've got about 18 miles of iron, galvanized iron uh, water mains. They were a economic material uh, when we needed to build water mains throughout the town. Um, they have served their life. They need to be replaced. We have better materials available to us now than were available back then. We've got a $1 million project that's been working mostly in the northern part of town around um, Wildwood, Highland, Bigelow, Naranga, Palmetto, West Knapp, that whole area. Um, pretty soon those lines that have been put in are going to be cleared for use and, and I want to say within the next two months or so should all be, uh, that project should be wrapping up. 1963 sewer lining, we just spoke about that. We've got mains and laterals between US-1 and Riverside uh, under construction right now. Um, you'll see different crews working on that throughout the spring and summer. That is funded from our ARPA. The, I don't remember what that stands for, but it's about $2 million that we got from the ARPA funds for that project. Give us the American Rescue Plan. Thank you. Uh, there's a Park Avenue and US-1 water main relocation. The DOT in three years is going to be changing the uh, way that that whole intersection, Park Avenue and US-1, is aligned, operates, and we've got some old water mains there that need to move so that they're not in the way of the massed arm traffic signals and everything that they're doing. 
So we're rerouting a 12-inch water main down Wetzel, Western, Wilkinson, coming back into there, um, getting our water mains more or less out of that intersection so that, you know, it'll, it'll work better. It gets out of the way of all the traffic and improvements. Florida Shores Canal Armoring, we spoke about that earlier. Um, when we reach the 60% stage, I'll expect to bring something before council to give you all an update on that. All right. And that's the last slide. I kind of breezed through some of that. Are there any questions that I can answer? I have a question um, regarding um, uh, water meters. I know yes. we talked, uh, you, ha they're, you have them ordered, they're back ordered, and we're only getting them in staggered. Yeah. Um, right now, um, what is the percentage of, of residents who have the new meters? I meant to look that number up because okay, I had expected you would ask. I want to say system-wide, we're at about 40% on the, um, the FlexNet system, the power read. Um, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but I want to say it's another 10 to 20% that are on the, the newer meters, what we call the iPearl meters, that are not yet on the, the tower read, so they're on a drive-by read. So that puts us at about 40% or so of the system that's still on the, um, the analog, the SR2 meters, we call them. So we, we have been making some good ground on that. The fiber optic companies have been requiring our staff resources to respond to emergencies more than actually getting planned yeah. upgrades done. Well, I, I'm excited when it happens because I was speaking with other, um, other cities and um, once we have that in place, um, people can go on their phones and have a live read of what, what's happening in their house this very moment if they can yeah. see if they have a leak and once we address them as quickly as possible. Yes, That's yes. We need to reach a quote-unquote critical mass to pay for those licenses uh, to make that available to residents. Um, and that's that's a discussion we can have. When do we actually hit that quote unquote critical mass? We may be close, but yeah, I'm very excited for that. That is, you know, industry wide, that's where everybody's going. Yes, ma'am. I just want to say thanks <clears throat> to Jeff too. I don't know if you know this or not. It was uh, Martin Luther King Day, and I texted Gwen a picture of a fog line. We went to auto. Park store came back and there was Jeff standing there looking at the problem on Very a holiday. So I just want to say thanks for all you do for our community, even when you're not on duty. And um, when you had the public forum, you said that um, you typically maintain our ditches and swales once, um, possibly even twice a year. Mm -hmm. Could I just possibly get a map so I could tell people when they give me a call? My ditch hasn't been maintained in 20 years. Um, I think you and I have talked about this before. Mm -hmm. I think Glenn gave you a call about it as well. Um, so whenever you have a minute, if you could just email that over to me. Okay. Um, whenever the you maintain the ditches. Okay. I would like a copy of that as well because that's another common question that I've been getting as well. Okay. Do you say you would like a copy too? I think maybe everything that we discussed just with all of us. Okay. That way, because we all deal with the public in some form or fashion. Yeah, yeah, we will do that. Okay. Updated frequently, I'm assuming? That'd be great. Okay. Maybe like a report once a month that you could send us. Okay. Um, if you, have time. you already receive a quarterly report. Is this something that we should put into the quarterly report, or would you like it more frequently than that? Frequently. Okay. Because I, I know I, I personally get probably about three calls a day. <laughs> okay. At least. Okay. 
Understood? Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for your time. How's it going? Doing good. Happy Friday. Ready? Okay. Uh, I'm Darren Lear, Development Services Director for the city. Um, got a presentation for you. I'm sure you're looking forward to these, some more of these, right? Um, so our responsibilities are for managing future and existing development in the city and responsible for the development and administration of community planning and the building program. And next is our uh, organizational chart. You just keep going through it. Yeah, it takes a while. <laughs> I didn't know it did that. So you see on the planning side, uh, we have a planning technician and a senior planner. Uh, then on your building division side, you have your chief building official, uh, three permit clerks, and then three inspectors. We just added a new inspector, uh, Bo Griffin, the other day. Stole it from Environmental Services, actually. Um, under the Planning and Zoning Division, we're responsible for maintenance amendments to the city's comprehensive plan and land development code. There you go. Uh, the Planning and Zoning Division processes over 45 different type of applications, including annexations, future land use amendments, rezonings, and variance requests. Staff provides information and recommendations to the Planning and Zoning Board who then provide recommendations to City Council on subdivisions and plats, proposed developments and zoning agreements, proposed annexations, proposed rezonings and land development code amendments, and proposed comprehensive plan amendments, and proposed abandonment and vacations, and provide recommendations to City Council regarding site plans over 25,000 square feet of building area. The Planning and Zoning Board shall have final authority to approve and modify and or deny the following unless appealed to the City Council as provided in Article 1 of your Land Development Code, and those are conditional use permits and variance applications. So next, what is, our, what is the comprehensive plan? It's our adopted official statement and vision of local government that sets forth goals, objectives, and policies intended to direct the present and future physical, social, and economic development that occurs within its planning jurisdiction. So within the comprehensive plan, you have elements, um, basically chapters, that address future land use, including population, housing, transportation. Um, also, there's utilities, infrastructures, uh, which are made up of solid waste, sanitary sewer, uh, potable water, including water supply, planting, stormwater, and natural groundwater sub-elements. Uh, other elements are coastal management, conservation, recreation, open space, intergovernmental coordination, public school facilities, and capital improvements. And within each element of the comprehensive plan, there are certain goals, objectives, and policies which outline the desired resulted target by the comp plan. The goals are value-based 
statements which are not necessarily measurable. Uh, then you go down to objectives, more specific measurable, measurable statements. And then your policies or rules or courses of action that indicate how those goals and objectives should be realized. An example of a goals, policy, and objective would be in your transportation element, which is goal one, to develop a safe, convenient, efficient, coordinated system of motorized and non-motorized transportation facilities, which ensures adequate movement of people and goods through and within the city. So then the next step down would be your objective on that. Uh, roadway network to provide an attractive, safe, convenient, efficient arterial collector and local roadway system that serves travel demands within and through the city. And then the policy under that would be the arterial roadway system shall be designed through cooperation with FDOT in Volusia County to provide high volume, multi-lane facilities with access controls as needed to preserve the through traffic carrying capacity of the facility. The city will require joint, joint use access, cross access easements, and access prohibitions wherever traffic patterns and physical features make it possible in the development approval process. So then moving on, after your comp plan, comp plan, you have your land development code. Land development code is the zoning ordinance for the city and is adopted as chapter 21 of your city of code of ordinances. It's essentially a document of rules and regulations to guide all development within the city, as well as the day-to-day -day decisions made by city staff. Land Development Code is a comprehensive document that includes a total of separate, 20 separate chapters or articles. The purpose of your Land Development Code is to promote and safeguard the health, safety, comfort, and welfare of the public, and to ensure that lands within the City of Edgewater are developed in a manner which is consistent with the policies and objectives of the City of Edgewater's comprehensive plan. It is further the intent of this code to implement the requirements of Chapter 163, 163 Florida Statutes by adopting regulations which the allowed use of property within the city, standards for development, that is parking, landscaping signs, outdoor lighting, natural resource protection, as well as design guidelines. Detailed procedures for review and administration including procedures and review processes for zone changes, variances, amendments to the LDC or subdivision of land. Regulate the subdivision of land, regulate the use of land and water for those land use categories included in the land use element, and ensure the compatibility of adjacent uses and provide for open space. Also provide for the protection of potable water well fields. Also to regulate areas subject to seasonal and periodic flooding and provide for drainage and stormwater management. Ensure the protection of environmentally sensitive lands des designated in the comprehensive plan and also the regulation of signage and provide criteria and standards to regulate and protect and enhance unique areas of the city, establish procedures to ensure that policies and objectives of the comp plan are enforced. Uh, also provide criteria and procedures to ensure that the level of service standards are established that are established in the comprehensive plan are met, and also to ensure safe and convenient on-site traffic flow and parking. So these are your articles of the Land Development Code. Um, I won't go through all of them. Um, the biggest, I've got Article 2 definition. Article 3 is your permitted, conditional, and accessory and prohibited uses chart. Um, they also go into other things like, uh, as I mentioned, accessory structures. Uh, Article 4, resource protection standards. Article 5 is also a big one we use. That's your site design criteria for site plans. Um, Article 7, non-conforming uses. Um, 
see, Article 13, uh, subdivisions. Um, that's one that gets used quite a bit. Also, you have um, your Article 18, which is your Indian River Boulevard, State Road 442, corridor design regulations, and Article 20, which is your Ridgewood Avenue corridor design regulations. What that means is those two areas have to meet a little bit more as far as signage and architectural design standards. Uh, now for our building division, responsible for ensuring that all new or improved structures meet state building code and local ordinance requirements. Work is divided into three major activities, permit processing, plans examination, and construction inspection. Personnel receive building permit applications, check contractors for required license issue permits, and maintain records. Plans are examined to ensure all construction meets the requirements of code, regulations, and other ordinance. Build inspections are conducted to ensure all new improvements are being constructed in accordance with approved plans and all applicable construction codes. Your building division processes over 100 different type of applications, including but not limited to residential buildings, commercial buildings, swimming pools, electrical, tree removal, fences, and many others. And this is uh, the building department report for last year. Um, for the calendar year of 2022, and that's also in our quarterly report. And if you'll notice, for the year we issued 5,270 permits. Uh, we took in building permit fees of $1,079,986. There were 242 single-family homes built last year, uh, six duplexes, and we had 26 mobile home units. And the value of these residential uh, improvements was $73,185,217. Uh, we also had 14 commercial permits. The value of those commercial permits were $15,004,030. We did 13,986 inspections last year and issued 206 uh, certificates of occupancy. And as a matter of fact, as I mentioned the our quarterly report, that's on our website under the planning uh, development Services and Planning Department, uh, and all that information is in there. We also have on our website current development projects map that anybody can go on and check to see what's going on in the city as far as development. And with that, do you have any questions? You didn't really tell us much about yourself. Oh, well, I'm originally from Kentucky. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Originally from Kentucky, graduate of University Where? of Kentucky, Where? go Wildcats. Really? <laughs> yeah. My aunt lives in Owensboro. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I'm from Lexington. Okay. That's cool. Um, and I've been at the city for, in August, it'll be 24 years. Darren and I share a birthday. Yes. Oh, older. One year. Wow. Um, Which is? <laughs> I have anything else I'm happy to share. And I think we're probably going to be rescheduling the meeting to go into the land development code more in depth, I think. Okay. I mean, I, I like, I'm going to eventually have more questions about signage issues, and I know that's sure. going to be a big thing that's going to come up with that. So I'm and going to the, save that that. And you have like three articles that deal with the signage. You have the Article 6, which is basically any other property in the city that's not on US 1 or 442. And you've got 442 corridor design regulations and US 1 corridor design regulations. Okay, thanks guys.
Appreciate Have a good weekend. If you want to, we can move on. Or if you guys want to take a quick break. Doesn't matter. Okay. I'm going to grab something. I do have, there is coffee and water up there. Also, you guys too, there is coffee and water. Um, Or print it out, whatever. That would be even better. Um, my name is Jason O'Keefe, I'm Assistant Director of Parks and Recreation. Uh, I've been working with Sam since 2017. I worked prior with the previous directors and Assistant Director. I started here in 2015 as the um, Superintendent, so I worked on the beautification crew as they had uh, taken in-house from a uh, contractor that they had privatized it. Um, I'll start. I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, my family relocated here to Florida in 1987. Um, I graduated from Atlantic High School. I went to a vocational school in Gainesville. I received um, my certification in horticulture and turf management from that school. I have uh, been a member of the Sports Turf Managers Association since 2013. 
um, the green industry member. I've been since 2002. I was a, um, I owned my own company, was a privatized uh, company. I did a lot of uh, municipality and subcontract work for the Volusia County um, municipality. I, I did things like the airport and I did 85 sites for Volusia County, including their courthouses, um, parks, rec, stuff, uh, road and bridge contracts, all their turf management stuff that they had outsourced. Um, I worked at the Volusia County School Board for about five and a half years as their grounds manager for the district. They privatized and subcontracted out, so I went to work for that company, which was GCA Services Group. Um, they uh, are the leading company that provides uh, work to the K through 12, and um, as far as facility management and grounds management, so I worked for them, and I was um, their district manager and their regional manager um, at one point in time for Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. Um, I, I am a certified instructor for best management practices um, for Florida pesticides. Um, again, I, I started here in 2015, and uh, in 2017, I was promoted to the deputy director, or assistant director. <laughs> deputy, deputy, there you go. It's been gone Both back and twice, forth. Yeah. Jason and I took over the department. We built in some opportunities and opportunities for employees to be able to have flexibility. When we came aboard, our entire department was very flat. It was the director, deputy director, and then deputy director. So since we've been here, we've created two lead positions. Um, so we have a lead position for our building maintenance division, which we've also created, as well as a lead position for our education services, the two that you see the most visibly on your
for the hurricane Ian this year and just we had completely gutted and uprooted an outdoor space we work very closely with um, Solar which is partnering with Sustainable Services and Solar Ocean and we have a great partnership with them and just have been able to exceed That's the key pin in the in the business budget, and um, the budget for this year for that division is five hundred million dollars dollars. Um, basically, what this division is responsible for is the median day right away on the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and even though those are technically services on the state roadways, the city does have a contract relationship with DOT. It's every three years that one of the cities meets, where they reimburse us a portion of what it costs us to meet the needs there. Um, we also, before our time, we had grants that we received for all the beautification and um, all the beautiful landscaping that you see on U.S. Army Corps 42. That was acquired through DOT. I think they were closing out one of their beautification campuses there. So we maintain that as well. Um, Jason does a fantastic job completing the beautification for those houses and those trims because we have lime and pipe that we have to bring to the parcel and pipe it up so that they don't fall through the ceiling and hit the um, In addition to that, we also take care of all the facilities as far as mowing and edging and weeding and the city hall and the green and the fire department. Um, of course, we have the parks department. We have right here contractors with the DOT. Um, we take care of the fitness tables and the lift station. Again, our department works very well together division heads and our contractors it was made very clear in the city that we work very well together and that's fair to try to just make our work as most efficient as possible can i yes ask, can you just keep them up here a bit yes. for me that would be great or great let me bring it down yeah it's really tripping you up but basically all of our parks. We have, currently we have 12 parks online, which encompasses 151 acres, including the YMCA, the ball field, soccer fields, parking structures, maintenance, vandalism repair, Riverside Drive irrigation, city property, fountains, creek trimming, fence maintenance, repairs, Edgewater Youth Heritage Cemetery, shrubs that you see along Highway 1, building renovations, and And then, of course, the administration, which is our office part of it, um, is $550,000. Um, a lot of project management planning, a lot of payroll on events comes out of that budget. Um, we also are so blessed. We have an in-house graphic designer that specializes in graphics and decoration. So the Shorelines newsletter that comes out quarterly in the utility bill, um, Andrea lays that all out. She gets all the information from all the different departments, and she puts it all together. also helps um, with the annual financial report cover. We've done a cover for the police department when they were working on their special projects that were required to cover the cost of that. Um, we do beautification uh, awards. We do holiday light contests, grant reporting, um, and we also 
Just some fun facts. Um, Hawks Park Sports Complex and YMCA show our annual population growth. These are numbers that we have to report in our multi-use. A lot of these parks and schools that we know are originally created, they were echo funds that were created. So we have to provide a report every year. So how many kids played, how many times a week they played, um, and then those that's how those numbers We have a lot of great public meetings in our park, um, especially Wichita Park is probably one of our hotbed places. And that doesn't include, I think it was even more this past summer, we had a couple areas surrounding cities where their staff calls were down, and so we ended up having everybody in camp. We had Volusia County camp, we had YMCA camp, we had Hidden City camp, um, we had a bunch of other camps from other communities that came down, and it overwhelmed our kids at a time, even though the, the maximum capacity of the camp was 25. So, a lot of great use in our park. Um, some of our up-and-coming uh, up and coming, uh, current and future projects, um, we still have a grant that we're working on through the YMCA for cars in that building to do a new roof and hurricane-proof windows and doors. Um, we've been already in the process of funding over the $20 million for that. We also um, have proposed boat ramps for a couple grants to help get it built because we have to have a minimum $100,000 budget. So we'll be working on that. Um, we also have a partnership. We greatly enhanced and embraced our trip to Waterloo Center because it just um, be able to leverage those dollars and leverage that time to come to this type of site. And so we partnership with Riverside Conservancy. We have a grant for a living shoreline project at Veterans Park that's also at Oyster's Rehabilitation. Again, that is um, partnerships with Save Environmental Services because it's at our watershed and stormwater, and we want to see that we can sustain this park system and future development of this park as well. So very excited about that partnership. Um, we're also working on for this year replacing the playground at the YMCA, and we are currently have been working on it since we from the beginning when we first got open with the lighting. So you hear about that if you're on Facebook or you're on social media. We definitely had some lighting issues that we've been working on parts to get back over and have that oversight for our teams to see getting those lighting issues changed. Tennis court, basketball court, dog park, bike park, and swim pool. It's just uh, been taking time to work on that project for this program. And then um, current and future projects that really Jason is having the shoreline assessment we have a um, company that we contract with that it assesses all of the shorelines in the city of Waterloo right now so we're looking at mangroves living shorelines and also the resilience of our beach streets so we're working on that project for that because they'll be eligible for that later in the year as well um, and replacing the roof of the amphitheater Two, we've been in contact with 
know, just for your visual guide and kind of area of where your future poetry would be, and kind of a little rough design of that uh, of that record. And then the other hat, which is economic development through development. The budget this year is about $56,000, and some of the accomplishments that we've had over the years are Boston Royal Education, which we are very pleased to have as a partner, bringing jewelry manufacturing and keeping them here, and expanding the Silver Slope out of our previous Okinawa Paint Factory that's got vacant land and reserved 12 acres of 187,000 square feet of acres. Soil development and amazing accomplishments through that project. We also landed a Northwest Diamond Tower back in Cooperstown, and a couple of companies, uh, JAS Powder Coatings over in the industrial drive area in downtown South Florida, and Onyx Development Consultants, which is a special venture that was the second phase of Cooperstown for students and business in downtown South Florida. They built plans to build one million square feet of buildings are not going to be any smaller than the units that we built here in Fort Myers. So 130,000 square feet and one million square feet of poetry buildings here in Fort Myers. And uh, one or all of those owners will be selected by the state industry for breakthroughs that we're going to have to work very hard to get other cities to adopt the Chamber of Commerce and adopt the cities and technology coalition to bring the local course, back here in Fort Myers to help us with our infrastructure and infrastructure needs. Current projects that we are working on are economic development and through development of that advisory board we mentioned again. Um, we are in the process of updating our comprehensive economic development strategic plan. Its original development plan ends and we're going to update it every five years. It is a consistent plan that provides an update every month and that is what takes the gold out of the where we are and solves a lot of the challenges that we have in our economic development. Um, we're also working very closely with the Southeast Asian Academic Technology Coalition and collaborating with Silicon and Dow Keratin as part of the joint efforts with the three cities. And so we are uh, interested in working with them as well to keep them on track. Working really hard on recruitment, both retention and keep of artists and businesses, and all about uh, shifts to our Voice Your Business resources to all of our businesses in Boulder Village so that artists can gain extra training, gain extra hiring opportunities, and then have to make loans, any kind of crisis uh, is very important to us. And of course, we just passed our budget for the Regional Economic Development Plan, so it'll be incorporating that into our strategic plan for the next five years. A lot of that was infrastructure, so we'll be updating the Southeast Asian Manufacturing and Technology Coalition, and that website that we developed is www.osmanfoundation.org. And just to be very clear that this is not a new advisory initiative, we've formulated these tools, these marketing tools that are working with our licensed tools for senior leadership, so that when they're out on their marketing tools and they're on Facebook and they're on videos that we've got from the representation, that our listeners are looking at it from a personal standpoint, 
people equally opinionated to hear about their concerns. And the next is just kind of a, when we started working with the CCHPC and kind of where we are and what we do there, because I, like it was a bright support group and we really wanted to be able to talk about where we could fit in and what part of the sphere that we could take advantage of in terms of student-related jobs. And that really that started with the CCHPC Cultural Affairs Office, which is something we've been in for some time now, but we've been moved by the CCHPC Cultural Affairs Office to say, we can please have the workforce to be able to um, funnel, if you will, some workforce into be able to accommodate businesses that are paying way above the minimum wage or the median wage in many cases and kind of get into some of those lower wage jobs. So those are the two things that kind of we were hanging our hat on when we were finding the location for the CCHPC Cultural Affairs Office. These are some of the websites. Um, their Facebook page is called the Cultural Affairs Board. You can talk to all of those at their site, the main site, and share your goes into the Edgewater Community Redevelopment Agency. And we did that with first PRA board meeting. We went over a lot of this. I'm going to go through this very, very quickly. But this is the map of the area. In general, it pretty much runs the size of U.S. 1 and Freedom Crossing. And it has all the primary objectives and then the offices and groups. And we went through them very much in depth in this hearing. So if you have any questions, please feel free to ask This is a 40-year plan, um, so there's a lot of material that was originally created in the vision book from 2008, and then the actual plan was updated at the last meeting of CBCAN in 2010, and then this was approved in 2013. And the biggest thing right now is active in the PRA is the Facade Village Program, so any of the property owners in the PRA area, there are two grant programs. One is a small, so up to $5,000 endowment. There's a medium scale improvement grant of $25,000. Both are matching 50-50 grants. So in other words, you have to spend $10,000 to get the $5,000 back. And um, most of them, they're for exterior improvements to properties, including cleaning, repairing, painting, architectural details, signage, so some of the, you know, if you look at the sign ordinance, and this put the CRA together, sorry, I'm way ahead, <laughs> okay. 28, okay. jump. Um, the sign ordinance, we work together very closely with the city of Newport and the city of Edgewater to be able to make sure that we have all of these things in place and documented. And, you know, because you look at them, you'll say, oh, these things are here, but they're, they're very, very close to us. Um, and one of the that we put into the CRA grant program was to be able to allow and to assist these businesses to bring their full time to maintain their building so they can utilize the CRA grant to be able to help them out. So it's a great tool, it's a win win, and that's really what we strive for. I think it's a win win, and it's a win win opportunity for them to have a very good environment. Um, some of the other things that they can use money for is for landscaping, lighting, 
very nice, very simple, nice applications. They have all the ideas and all the reasons why they think how that would affect the population. And then just as this last point on the financial statement, we talked about um, how much from the very beginning in 2014 and kind of how the funds build Well, first, thank you guys both for all you do, because I like I, I said this to you last night, like every time like you're always wearing a new hat and you're a part of something else, and I was like, what else do you do? And you just always come up with something else. And I'm like, I don't know how you have enough time in the day. And then with Jason, every building I swear I've been into, they're like, yeah, Jason and his guys did this. They did this. Oh, my God. And I'm just like, I don't even know where you find the time to have done everything that you've done, because... The, the animal shelter looks amazing, what you guys did. And, I mean, I know you did a bunch of stuff in Bonnie's office. And Thank you. The police department everywhere is just, like, raving about, Jason, those guys did all this. And it's a lot of the thank team. You. There, I got um, a great group of guys. And then I had two uh, random questions. I remember, like, going back to original, I think it was part of the Parks and Rec, it said that we took care of the new Smyrna Edgewater Cemetery. Does that, does that fall under us or – and not sea pines. I was just curious. Yeah, it's only the front <coughs> so Okay. There was a, a green lease years ago. If you'll notice, if you look at the overhead power lines, mm -hmm. they go down. They go underground alongside the cemetery, mm -hmm. right? So years ago, there was an agreement to try to help beautify Rio Grande because I don't know if you remember how bad Rio Grande was. Mm -hmm. City manager stated that the cemetery would not be up to par. Um, the city agreed to plant and take care of the new shrine. So basically, it just creates a nice okay. green wall um, to you know, decentralize that area. And then there's an irrigation for that, and it's going to be beautiful. I was just curious because I saw it was the one major cemetery, but not the other one on the other side of town. So I didn't know if it was um, what the difference it was. was. An agreement before okay. Okay. Yeah. And then the other was I saw on when going through the when you're going through the CRA there was a picture of driftwood. So is that one that's are they is that an area that's being or it appeared to be driftwood. Thank you, thank you. Okay. Oh, that's much better. <laughs> Um, the entire area. So as I mentioned in your CRA board meeting, in order to get your CRA approved, you have to find, you have to do um, a finding of necessity, F-O-N. And the finding of necessity, you have to meet all the criteria that it's blighted. And so that was one of the examples that we included along US-1 of um, so some of the properties, a lot of them are older, um, they're, um, they're small, so they're di very difficult to redevelop because they can't hold their own stormwater and meet all the criteria that's required with 
um, our land development code and things like that. So um, that's just a photo. There are lots of photos throughout the CRA plan. It's just one of the photos I pulled from okay. the CRA plan. I was just curious if there was like plans for that particular property. There are not specific for that property. It would take either for the property owner to want to redevelopment or for him to sell it and then for a new buyer to come in and want to redevelop it. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? I have yeah. a question about the, um, the 86 acres that have, um, that's just been purchased. Yes, 83, yep. 83. Um, how long, how long do you think it will take um, until the spec buildings are, are ready to be occupied? Um, so they had a pre-application meeting several months ago, and they were trying to work out because they wanted to have an ingress and egress, and so we worked very closely with environmental services with their new public works facility, and I believe, Randy, they talked about turning the new facility ever so slightly so that we could have an exit road that would come through the city property so they could enter and then make a big loop and exit. So they're in the process of redesigning, and they, we haven't seen anything come through yet to be submitted. But they have to go through the process um, for each of those facilities that they're going to build. So they have to meet all of the park town, industrial park. There's an owner's association. There's um, covenants and declarations that have to be met. Um, before it can even come to the city. So it'll be a while. Okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I just have a couple questions. So you talked about the plate. I, when you and I spent the morning together, I really enjoyed it and uh, saw a couple areas that I didn't even know existed as far as playgrounds go. Um, you were talking about dismantling and replacing the playground at the YMCA. What's the process? Do we own that playground? Do we sell it? Do we... Move it elsewhere? No, it's um, it has um, met its life expectancy, and it's uh, it needs to be taken down and disposed of. Gotcha. Um, can't rehab it or move it somewhere else. No, that's what they do in other cities. No, I just need to. I'm hoping that I can just piggyback off of um, something similar from another city here in the state of Florida. Um, or I'll have to put together a complete bid package. It's just, it's waiting on me to do it. And then, um, do we reach out to businesses to state to them that they're eligible for the CRA? So I'm working on a mailer that would be a three-fold, like a tri-fold mailer that would be mailed to the businesses that are within the CRA district that would let them know and outline what is available. Okay, great. Is there different criteria if you lease not available to lease okay. property owners only. And there's only one grant per property. Okay. If the property owner steps up with the business, does that make it eligible for that location? Um, it, the application applicant can only be the property owner. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. And if you think of something, um, you know, Open door, always available. Just email me, call me, um, or Jason. We're happy to be of assistance. Okay? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys.
Long time no see. I was going to say good morning again. Is it the same slideshow again? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the same videos? Do what? The same videos? Just get a little bit. Video. A little bit. Do you get that, that second perspective now? All right. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, the, the mayor and Miss Gillis are part of our Citizens Academy. So we, we might refer a couple questions. <laughs> overview presentation. So. The most funniest thing is when the guy walked up to me and said, Why do they call you the mayor? <laughs> 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 I guess. I would. I don't think I'd have been able to hold it in. It's <laughs> quicker there. Good morning, Mayor and Council. Uh, thank you for letting us present on your police department. A little bit about myself. I'm Joe Mahoney. I'm your chief of police. Um, in a short couple months, I'll have 20 years of service with the city. Uh, during my tenure here, I served in several different capacities. Um, prior to being the police chief, I was the police captain, which is the second in command for the agency. For about six years, I was the interim police chief. Uh, in 2018, and then the full-time police chief in July of 2019. Uh, it's been a great opportunity for me. Uh, it's a very rewarding job, and I am very proud to be the police chief because we have an excellent police department and excellent police officers. And I'll let um, Captain Geiger introduce himself. So my name is Chaz Geiger. Uh, I've been with the Edgewater Police Department since 2011. Most of my career, actually my entire career, I spent on the streets in a patrol aspect. Um, I did about six years in the canine unit. Out of the canine unit, I promoted to sergeant. When I was a sergeant, I was in charge of special projects for the city, um, for the police department, and then uh, some advanced and specialized units in training. In November, I had the wonderful opportunity to be promoted to captain, so I'm still kind of filling in that position, but we're hitting the ground running. Where I think that we're really doing some really great things. I know the police wear uniforms, but we, we like to be very informal um, during meetings and discussions. So please stop us if you have any questions uh, or comments. <clears throat> Our vision statement is policing for the future today. And what that means is, is we're willing to and able to accept new ideas. So, you know, 2023 and the past few years have, uh, the world has changed tremendously uh, and so has policing. So we want to make sure that we're receptive to new styles of policing uh, to be the most effective uh, for our citizens. It also means empowering officers to grow, learn, develop in the leaders they are today and tomorrow. So my management style when I became the police chief is a collabor collaborative style of policing. So you see a lot of um, police departments which are paramilitary <laughs> and they have a very authoritarian approach um, to law enforcement. Um, I believe that input from every level of the, of the organization is important. 
um, from the patrol officer to the civilian staff to our volunteers uh, so we can make proper decisions in policy guidance uh, and make an overall good work environment for our employees. And that will uh, reflect on how we treat and uh, respect our citizens. Providing officers with the most current training and equipment to allow them to serve the community to the best of their abilities. So we have to be, we're technically, if you look at a national level, we're a medium-sized police department. So it is very important that we are self-reliant um, during states of emergencies and overall in every policing incident we're involved in. You know, for example, in Hurricane Ian, um, Volusia County's resources, the state of Florida's resources uh, were very far and few between because there is emergencies everywhere. So as a city of Edgewater and, and while I'm in charge of public safety here, I want to have the equipment, tools, and training um, that I don't have to rely on an asset or, addition, or additional offers, officers coming from other locations. We should be able to take care of our citizens uh, without that need. Unwilling to accept status quo, constantly seeking new innovation improvements for the agency, employee and city alike. And that's fairly simple. We want to keep getting better um, every day, and, and that's what we plan to do. Mission statement is create an environment in which we foster trust, transparency, and positive relations to the better serve our community today and tomorrow. So one of my main goals uh, when I became the police chief is to become more involved in our community. Um, I think it's an imperative uh, that we have a lot of positive inter interactions uh, with our juveniles and the general public um, to show them that they have good men and women who care about the community uh, out here policing. Being fully transparent in our day-to-day -day op day -day operations. There's a, there's a lot of uh, individuals and, and rhetoric um, about police uh, covering things up or, or not handling situations properly. Um, so we are fully transparent. Every complaint, and we're going to get to some of this later in the, in the presentation, but every complaint we receive uh, is investigated. And that could be as simple as something where a, a citizen calls in and says they saw a police car speeding, and they give us a location. It's going to go on a piece of paper to a supervisor. That supervisor is going to forward that complaint to our captain. The captain's going to forward the complaint to me. I'm going to determine what type of investigation is going to occur, and then we're going to investigate it. Strive to serve the citizens, visitors, and community through positive relations and rapport. And I've pretty much covered that. And we just want to build on our relationship with our community. That, that is a, a priority for us. <clears throat> so this is our organiz organizational chart. We have 38 uh, total employees, and we have 32 sworn officers. And uh, we'll go into what each of these uh, responsibilities are throughout the presentation. So of the 32 sworn police officers, we have a patrol division. Um, the patrol division is, is the uniform officers you'll see in marked police cars that are the backbone of our, our police department. If you call 911 or you have an emergency, that's who you're going to see respond uh, to your residence or your business. The criminal investigations division is is a support division. 
and they're going to respond to uh, more serious crimes or crimes that need follow-up uh, and investigate those and hopefully bring them to successful conclusions. Then we have two canine teams, which everyone loves our canines. Uh, they're great. Uh, they're a great asset to our department. Uh, our motor unit, <clears throat> we were fortunately able to uh, add a motor about two years ago, which is a traffic unit, and we just uh, added an additional traffic unit on a motorcycle as well. I can tell you when I first started with this agency in 2003, we had uh, a five-person traffic unit, and through attrition and uh, some downturn in the economy, uh, we had zero. Um, so we brought that unit back. It was a major priority of mine. As everyone knows, our, our biggest complaint is speed and narcotics. So we need specialized units to address those. Um, our evidence technician, um, she is a civilian employee. Um, she has great responsibility with uh, processing evidence. She takes a copious amount of, of items in her office, and we'll touch, on, touch a little more on that later as well. And then we have mid- and upper-level narcotics task force agents, um, and they are plainclothes undercover uh, officers that address our city's narcotics problems. And we'll touch on that as well in a few minutes. The great uh, unsung heroes of the police department are the six civilian employees. Uh, that's our support staff, and, and they do a great job to help, help our mission. In addition to that, <clears throat> we have other, you know, these officers uh, who have primary responsibilities, whether they're a, a patrol officer or detective, um, they're involved with, with extra duties. We're part of a multi-jurisdictional SWAT team. So what that is, it's a force multiplier. So we have 32 sworn officers, and for a SWAT team to be really effective, it should be over 20 persons. Um, so we, through mutual aid and in agreement with Port Orange, South Daytona, New Smyrna Beach, Daytona Beach Shores, uh, soon to be Ormond Beach as well, we have a joint SWAT team so we can pool our resources. So that being said, in Edgewater, we can have four officers assigned to a SWAT team that wouldn't, wouldn't be able to execute a, a SWAT call or a search warrant. Um, but now that we're a unified team in the county, uh, in, in a matter of minutes, I can have 22 officers here to handle a SWAT incident. Then we have a part-time Marine Patrol unit on our beautiful river. I'd love to make that full-time one day. We're not quite there yet, but we're out there in the busy months. Then we have a drone and robotic operations program. Uh, we have some very sophisticated uh, equipment when it comes to drones uh, and ro robotics, and it's, uh, it's something that we never had in the past, and we added uh, two years ago. Then also, similar to the SWAT team, we have a hostage crisis negotiation team. Um, and the, that's comprised of the same cities that are involved in the SWAT team. <clears throat> and then uh, we have a training division as well to make sure we're current uh, and following best practices uh, with our law enforcement peers. Patrol division. <clears throat> so the city of Edgewater, our officers are very busy. They're involved in about 27,000 incidents per year. That's everything, traffic stops, uh, domestics, uh, mentally ill people. Uh, each month we generate approximately 300 reports. Each year we arrest approximately 1,300 people. 
Our patrol officers are extremely well equipped. Um, Body-worn camera, that, that's pretty uh, normal throughout most of America now. Uh, obviously the Glock uh, handgun uh, with an additional um, attachment to improve targeting in high-stress situations. An AR-15 rifle uh, and a 40 millimeter less, launcher, less lethal, lethal launcher, a taser and stop stick. So we're going to touch on some of that stuff too later on the presentation. And then they're all equipped with breaching equipment, ballistic shields, and first aid equipment. So we have some of the best uh, equipment and well-equipped officers. I can brag and tell you that we want to give as many less lethal options as we can to our officers so we don't have to uh, be involved in a, in a shooting. Um, the 40 millimeter less lethal launcher, uh, we are the only agency in Volusia County that issues that to every, every officer. And it's just one more tool uh, that, so we don't have to use a firearm. All right, the best way to show is through videos, and luckily our body-worn camera footage, or body-worn cameras gives us the ability to really brag more, but at least uh, learn and teach. So this is the intersection of Air Park and 442. This is about a little over a year ago. In Edgewater, it's a blessing in disguise where it's located. You know, we have the convenience of US-1 to the east and I-95 to the west, but a lot of criminals utilize that as well. Um, this incident, do I? Hey, yeah, it's fine. Um, oh, yeah, it's okay. So this, <laughs> please, everybody needs to know. Yeah, yeah. We know where you're coming from. Yeah. Uh, but this incident, there was uh, some people that had stolen two cars in a different jurisdiction, drove to our city, literally to go through Florida Shores, which is a smorgasbord of unlocked cars to steal whatever wasn't, uh, whatever wasn't bolted down. We have some technology in the city to notify us when vehicles like that come in. This patrol shift is extremely proactive. Um, they're known for getting a lot of high-profile arrests and really aggressively enforcing crime. We found these people on 30th Street. They immediately blacked out high speed through the shores, and they were trying to get to Interstate 95. So what you're going to see is Sergeant Lawler here utilizing stop sticks um, to kind of explain what those are. It's kind of a unicorn, but he actually got stop sticks on both fleeing vehicles going over 100 miles an hour, which is not an easy thing to do. They uh, abandoned themselves in Coral Trace subdivision. We utilized the canine unit to make several arrests that night, recovered several stolen firearms, um, some ballistic vests from some other agencies which had been stolen too. So it's a it's a it's an arrest we like to brag about, but it also shows kind of what we deal with because although it's a very safe city, it is not Mayberry. Can, can you hit play, Bobby? Thank you. The first 30 seconds are going to be without audio, and the reason the reason for that is is when they activate their body worn camera, it goes back 30 seconds. So it's going to show you video for that, but there's not going to be any audio. And you'll hear a double beep, and it'll come in. I'm sorry. So right now what the patrol ship's doing is they're behind this vehicles, and they're coming. They utilize hibiscus, thank God, to drive the way they did. And Sergeant Lawler um, was able to get in front of them and kind of determine the way that they were going to go. Um, he's on the radio now getting that information, and you'll see the result. So that car that went by, that's speed limit, about 45 miles an hour there, just to kind of for a reference. Both. 
Westbound. Central, give me air one. Sticks are clear, westbound. I got both vehicles. <laughs> I think it'll let me, if there's a lot of, there's excitement afterwards, we'll, we'll show you the, <laughs> the conclusion of it. Um, but that, that's something that, believe it or not, a lot of agencies in 2023 don't have access to. Um, and that's one of our only tools that we have to prevent these violent felons from fleeing to stop them to hold them accountable. Um, that's going to bring us into the canine unit. I'll go ahead and talk about that. Uh, I was lucky enough in 2012 to be assigned to the canine unit through my promotion in 2017. Um, we created the canine unit in 2011. Up until then, that's an asset that we never had. Um, there was a lot of learning through that for sure. Now, we've had four dogs in total. Four dogs in total, and we have two in service. So every single night in the city of Edgewater from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., there is what we call dog coverage or canine coverage. They're responsible for the violent calls um, that occur. Any burglary, any robbery, anything violent where people are in danger <coughs> that a felony is committed, we assign a canine to that call. And their first responsibility is to uphold public safety and to find that bad person. Um, Officer Nugent and Officer Epitropolis, we'll call them Sammy, it's a lot easier that way. Um, they're really good at what they do. Um, they're really passionate about it. We have an extremely high success rate. When those guys are on the ground, they find the bad guy about 75% of the time, which is, is a very, very, very high success rate. They have two additional, I'll call it three, additional responsibilities. The second one is going to be evidence recovery. So when crimes are committed, these bad guys don't want to be caught. They're running, they're throwing things. And at night, with the adrenaline going, it's very difficult to find it. We've all lost our keys before, and we're frustrated, checking pockets. We utilize the dogs to find that, too. Um, they're attached to the lead, and they're able to find things, which would take us hours to find in a matter of minutes. And it's kind of like a game to them. Their third responsibility, and I think it's one of the most important, is narcotics recovery. So we have a lot of, like I said before, pre, uh, proactive police officers that are out there stopping cars, trying to get these criminals that are going. Not everybody cooperates with the police. Um, so we utilize our canine unit to do free air sniffs of the vehicle. They're deployed on average between 15 to 45 times a week with vehicle sniffs. So they're busy. They're walking their paws, and those dogs <coughs> love it. Um, and the absolute most important job that they have is community relations because everybody loves canines. We printed out uh, baseball cards. We get 1,000 a year. Um, we give them out at all the schools. The canines sign it. The kids absolutely love it. So, um, But it's been a very successful unit and one that uh, I don't think that we could function to level we do without it. So prior to this video, oh, yeah. um, <laughs> no, no, you, just, you can go to the video. Uh, prior to it, I'm preface it. Um, you know, some elements of law enforcement are—they're not—they're not pretty. Um, there, there is uh, a dog bite in this video, so it may be disturbing to you. Um, you may hear some profanity as well, and I can tell you that um, the department does not allow profanity um, when we're dealing with our citizens uh, due to normal contact. But it's quite common for, um, uh, lack of a better term, scumbags, criminals. Um, that's how they—that's how they communicate. And if, if an officer in high-stress situations were to be timid, you know, and, and, and sir, may, may I have your hands? That doesn't work, unfortunately. So we have to be strong, and sometimes language is part of it, especially with high adrenaline. Um, so you may see some of that in this video. Um, but I'll let uh, Captain Geiger explain to you how violent, and this is actually a female offender, but how violent this, this incident was. So as I said before, we only utilize the dogs for very, very violent crimes. 
for instance, if somebody went to Winn-Dixie right now and stole a candy bar and went and hid in the woods, we're never going to deploy a canine for that. And it's also important to note, a dog is a finding tool. Um, it is not a use of force. They are giving warnings to give up. They're given a warning saying that the police are there. They're given a warning saying that the dog's there. They're given an additional warning several times over again that if they do not present themselves, they will be dog bit. So a dog's a finding tool. It is that person's decision whether they are bit or not or taken into custody. So this female and her boyfriend the night prior had done a violent uh, home invasion on India Palm, and they were armed. Um, when the patrol officers arrived that night, they were backing down the driveway in a vehicle which they had stolen from somebody else and actually rammed one of the police cars. Um, when they went to go arrest her, she took off and drug a police officer down the street for about 20 feet. Thank God he was able to come off the vehicle. A pursuit was authorized, and we turned it over to Brevard County. That's how far south they had gotten, and uh, they were able to get away. So through our investigatives and aggressive means, um, trying to find these people that are dangerous to the community, we found them in the county area of Edgewater. Um, we surrounded the house. We got the, the uh, cooperative occupants out of it, explained several times over the PA system that, and her name's Luann. Luann, we know you're inside the house. We are going to come in and get you. And this is the outcome of her uh, uh, ignorance that night, we'll call it. Thank you, ma'am. Cool. And this is, this is Officer Epitropolis in Nixon. Okay. So pay attention to Nixon here. He's not he's not aggressive, he's not mean, he's not just biting at people. His tail is wagging. He is he is working right now, he's excited. He has no idea that he's trying to find a bad person. He thinks that he's just trying to find what Sammy's wanting him to go with. Or wanting him to locate. Hold this door over here. Hold that over there. Find that pocket. Someone needs to go to the go to the south side of the house and hold it. We should have it. Okay, there's a door here that goes to the back other patio. Hold that, Chaz. I'm holding. I know. I'm just keeping sure. Leave it. Good. Leave it. Hoi. That would have been a pretty good hiding space. I'll throw that in there. couple things are important to note here. Um, the dog is on lead the entire time, and that's for a morbid reason. Um, if the dog did go in and get shot, we're able to recover the dog out. And it's also control. Um, God forbid, we had information about who was in this house, but God forbid there was a children's room or something we didn't know about. We can pull the dog out. Uh, another thing to notice is when Nixon actually does engage or apprehend Luann, um, he doesn't start at an ankle and go to a shoulder and go to the back. He's on one place he holds. It's not aggressive, and he holds it there until Sammy can come in. 
And then the last thing to note is as soon as she was out from where we could see her um, and her hands were visible, she, the dog was immediately taken off that apprehension. Um, it's a phenomenal tool. It saves lives. In Volusia County here, thank God we haven't had it. There's been several dogs over the past three years that have been shot. Enzo with the sheriff's office has been shot on two separate occasions. Um, and then two of my best friends that I went to high school with, one actually lost his dog in an officer-involved shooting at the sheriff's office, and another one got shot about a year ago. So it's violent. Those dogs take those officers to danger, but it's hands down the best resource that we have. And he's saying, he's saying good boy in that video, not because he's happy that she's being bit by the dog. It's reinforcing the behavior, just like you would do with your personal pet. You know, you'd say good boy, good boy when he does something that you want him to do. So, Come on. <clears throat> uh, Our motor unit, we have, uh, like I mentioned, we have two uh, motorcycle unit officers. Uh, their main responsibility is to, to uh, enforce traffic violations. Uh, conduct traffic investigations, uh, traffic crash investigations, and then traffic homicide investigations. Um, but we do it from an intelligence-based perspective. Um, so we have ways, uh, it's called a metro count. It's basically, if you saw it on the roadway, it'd be tubes coming across the road, which is car count and speed. So when we receive a speed uh, complaint, um, we try to get analysis to determine if there really is an issue in that particular area, and then formulate a plan on how to, to curb some of that behavior if there is an issue. Um, I can tell you that <clears throat> Florida Shores alone has 75 miles of paved roadway, and I wish I could talk to the person who designed it that way, because they're all straightaways. Uh, so it's very difficult to police. It's difficult to police from a, a traffic perspective, and it's also difficult to police from a, a crime perspective when we're trying to set a perimeter. We have an incident on India Palm, per se. Um, our perimeter has to keep expanding because that person could run technically westbound and be on Royal Palm within mere minutes. So it's a, it's a challenge for us. Um, I was glad that I was able to bring this unit back. It is much needed, and we're looking to expand it in the future. Our Criminal Investigations Division. Uh, these are our detectives. Um, they handle all serious incidents. Um, you know, after patrol with secure scene, they come in as support staff. Uh, they invest the major things, homicide, robberies, burglaries, assaults, um, and they do a great job for our agencies. They're, they're the individuals that if a patrol wants you a call of a, of a robbery or uh, any major crime, they'd be, they'd be writing the search warrants and executing those for those incidents. Narcotics investigators, much like Captain Geiger mentioned, he was a canine handler. I was a narcotics investigator for six years in a, a task force that was undercover on the east side of the county. Um, we have two officers assigned to two different uh, task force. One is the Volusia Bureau of Investigation. It's an upper-level task force. Um, and what they do is go after um, high-end drug traffickers. Um, so I can tell you, you're... Our detective, who's assigned to the Volusia Bureau of Investigation, uh, is involved in things that you'd see on TV and not expect in Edgewater. So he's, they're involved in wiretap operations. They work in close proximity with the DEA and the FBI and multiple other law enforcement agencies. Um, and then they work those cases all over the state. Um, and <clears throat> the, the general public would be surprised the nexus of those cases to Edgewater. 
So I can tell you that we had a case in Edgewater that was uh, generated by our investigator, um, and it had a significant nexus here to our city, and it ultimately ended up with a, a corrupt prison guard in the state of Georgia. Um, and they, uh, that's how we purchased our MRAP, through their, their drug seizure money. So they do a great job. And then we have a, a, a mid-level to lower-level investigator assigned to the East, East Side Narcotics Task Force. And what they do is they purchase street-level drugs. Uh, so we have a drug complaint in the city that we have a house that appears to be drug trafficking. Um, at a lower level, they'll investigate that. And then they conduct things called um, by walks or by busts. So basically, these are undercover police officers, um, and they use confidential informants or in an undercover capacity or both mixed, and they purchase uh, illicit drugs in our city. So the general public um, would not see this occurring because it's mostly when the drug is purchased, an arrest is not made. So we don't compromise the identity of these individuals that work for law enforcement. But I can tell you these, these incidents occur in broad daylight, unfortunately, in, in areas, um, you know, shopping plazas and gas stations and whatnot. Um, so we are, we are doing our best with that. Um, it's a force multiplier. We supply two detectives, and we get about uh, 40 total investigators that, that can help, help our agency combat narcotics. Uh, our evidence technician, um, most of you may remember when we switched, to, when we asked for the part-time records clerk and we added the new motor. Um, she started with us as a records clerk. She has uh, a bachelor's degree uh, in criminal justice uh, related uh, material. Um, she fits in very well with our agency and she is very busy, uh, processes about 4,000 pieces of evidence a year. Um, and then she serves as our quartermaster, so she uh, maintains the issuance of all our equipment from uniforms to guns to tasers. Pursuit intervention technique. So this is a commonly referred to as a pit maneuver. Um, it's used to uh, end uh, police pursuits. It's kind of a, a really a controversial um, Maneuver. You'll see a lot of agencies that don't do it. Um, I'm a firm believer that if we can end a pursuit in mere seconds before it even starts, I think that's actually safer for the public. So we uh, trained the entire department in 2021, and we're going to show you a video. and And the star of the video here is uh, is Captain Geiger. Um. So th similar to canine, this maneuver is only used for the most violent of the violent. And I'll give you a backstory on this. Um, this is December of last year. This individual um, was an estranged husband and went to her house in Port Orange. Um, he kicked the door in, pistol whipped her all throughout the evening. Um, it just really hellacious, for lack of better terms, things that he did to her that night. Um, once he left, she was able to crawl to a neighbor's house, beaten nearly to death, um, and report the crime. The Port Orange Police Department reached out to him on the phone and said that he was not going to jail. He was going to kill himself and any police officer that was behind him. Um, and through some techno techno technological advancements, they were able to determine that he was southbound on Ridgewood. Um, we located him south of 30th Street, and we did not want to force an issue. So we put our, un we put our unmarked vehicles behind, and we were waiting on the helicopter to get overhead. 
but he's going 70 mile an hour or 55 mile an hour southbound. The helicopter couldn't get there in time. We got down to Brevard County and he went westbound on 5A and there is nothing out there by any means. So when he made that turn, he realized there was about 15 vehicles behind him that all, all looked similar and he realized it was the police and he began fleeing. Um, he had just hang up, hung up with 911. He said that he knows that all those vehicles are the police that are behind him and it's going to be a shootout. So this is the result of that. So he actually, um, when we contacted him, uh, and thank God, so I, I had no intentions of hitting that hard from the rear. When I came off the concrete, I, I slid in that, but he actually had a gun in his lap, um, and he was waiting to utilize that on us. But that's something from time of him fleeing until time he was under, he was actually in handcuffs was about 36 seconds. Um, so it immediately took that violent felon off the streets. <clears throat> and if we didn't, if we were not trained in that in that maneuver, um, that would have been an authorized pursuit due to his his violent crime. Uh, and he would have um, sped through our city at a high rate of speed, most likely. Um, and, and as we all know, pursuits do not end uh, uh, nicely. There's usually a crash involved at the end of pursuits. So this, this maneuver here brought a bad guy in jail very quickly. No danger to the public, and uh, it was successful. And that's why we have this in place. It is highly restricted, though, in our policy. You're not going to see high-speed uh, pit maneuvers conducted in uh, in major areas of our city when there's a, a lot of people in, in, on the roadway. I promise you that. <clears throat> so use of force, uh, highly scrutinized. Um, obviously, it's part of the law enforcement profession that we have to meet force with force. Uh, we call it subject resistance, and then we escalate according to what, how they act and, and their, their actions. Um, when we have a use of force, 
Um, the supervisor will complete paperwork uh, indicating the incident and include the body camera footage. Um, that paperwork sent to uh, the captain. He reviews the incident and then sends the paperwork to me. I review the incident and we determine if it was a proper use of force, uh, if it was something that where we needed to remedially train the officer, uh, or in very rare cases, um, if the officer needed to be disciplined um, because it was improper. Uh, the next video coming up is, is kind of a really good demonstration of the less lethal resources that we have here in the city. Um, this is an individual that starts near the intersection of Pool 42 and US 1, so the most populated area of the city, and he was experiencing a mental crisis. Um, he was trying to self-harm himself with a knife to his neck. When the first officers arrived on scene, um, he ran from them towards the Family Dollar True Leave area. Um, there was a lot of tactics beforehand to try to get him the help that he needs, and he refused it. So in this video, you'll see the utilization of our 40 millimeter launcher um, and the utilization of a taser as well. And this and, is, and we are very concerned from the location that we don't want him, he's, he's by a business. The last thing we want him to do is walk into a business armed with a knife, and now he may take someone hostage. So we need to resolve this as quickly as we possibly can. And prior to this, there, there, was, there was three or four minutes of, of Quite a, quite a good bit of dialogue. Um, they thought that he was going to be able to be taken into custody nicely, and then he, he turned and ran. So. Miss Bonnie, please. Central safe traffic. They're walking towards us. that happened to you or I, we would be bent over on the ground begging for assistance.
So that that was we had several different options there. Um, if, if that would have been a, a police officer, even even an investigator, you know, somebody that doesn't have all those tools that are available to them, there's not really a lot of options. Um, but they started with verbal dialogue. You can see the crisis that he was going through. They went to the less lethal option of the launcher to try to create some distance. Um, that wasn't effective. Thank God the taser was. But at least we have so many different options before we have to get some work to, you know, to, to really use a, a, a lethal uh, force. And, and his pain tolerance was increased because he was intoxicated um, and then under the influence of, of narcotics. Because um, that foam round is not intended to kill but it, it is pain compliance and it does hurt. Um, and I can tell you that his bruise um, from that round was probably this big. And um, it would have took us down. I you promise you. I pretty, no. it's, <laughs> it's, it's, wow. it's scary. No, like a, like a it's scary. Yeah. Yes. Was he on the phone? No, that was, that was actually knife. the knife that was I, held uh, to his neck. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get in the Citizen Academy as well, and we'll invite you like to shoot that to see like how impressive it is. And when, remember that video when you do. To be like, I shot it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I touched on this already, our complaint process. Um, honestly, um, fully transparent. Every single complaint that we receive is reduced to writing and it's investigated, and then we notify the complainant of, of the outcome. Um, if you ever have, as, as elected officials, if you have a constituent um, say, hey, I, I complained about something and I heard nothing back, um, please contact me. Uh, we do make a small amount of mistakes, but it's probably not a mistake. It's probably been investigated. So, thank you. Body-worn cameras, pretty standard throughout law enforcement now. You know, I, I remember um, when we first started getting body cameras in law enforcement, there was a lot of pushback, not really with the Edgewater Police Department, but throughout the country of, of police officers not wanting them. Uh, that tide has changed. These police officers would not work out here with their body camera. Those body cameras um, act as excellent evidence in criminal investigations, and they clear um, so many complaints. It's it's amazing. Um, so they're they're a great tool for us, and, and we actually just ordered new ones recently to uh, enhance the features. This is our uh, pictures of our our new training facility. I know uh, Sam and, and Jason mentioned how much help they, they give throughout the city. Um, and we couldn't have accomplished this uh, on the budget we had uh, without them. But our officers obviously conduct all mandatory training. Um, and then the department uh, requires an extensive amount of continuing training just so they're, they're true professionals and they know how to handle any situation. Crisis intervention. <clears throat> you know, mental health is something that we take very seriously. Um, that's why we are a big participant of the hostage negotiation team. Um, that is not just for hostages. That's, that's for people who are having a mental crisis. Um, it could be at their home, and, and they may want to take their life. Um, that's one scenario. So we take that very seriously, and all our, all our officers were trained in crisis intervention. Um because it is broadcast, so we're not going to show the whole video involved in the juvenile, but we took a we took a screenshot out of it. Um, so this is Officer Chexfield. He is one of the most compassionate people that I have ever met, besides police as well. Um, there's a 13-year-old autistic child in this picture um, who got in trouble at school earlier, and there was a really big misunderstanding between, uh, between what had happened. He came back to school and uh, really, really came down on himself. 
Um, Officer Chexfield went inside, got in con or spoke with his mom, realized that he loved wrestling, SeaWorld, and there's probably a, a four to five minute conversation outside to get him comfortable. Um, he explains to him that he's going to be taken to the doctor. He's not in any trouble to rearrange his medicine. Um, they end up uh, hug, and then they go back inside the house. But it's really important, and I think that our police officers do a good job realizing that they're people first and police officers second. And I think that that's something that a lot of people need to understand. Um, the uniform's intimidating, and a robotic approach to thing is not the right answer. Um, and all of our officers really are, are good at finding that empathetic side to be able to, to reason. And Chief Mahoney says it all the time, the way that we want our police officers and your police officers to respond to calls is to pretend like it's your grandma that needs something. And how would you treat your grandma? Um, and I think that that's been really successful throughout our responses. So community involvement, um, we're, we're involved a lot with the community, and uh, that was a big initiative for me. Uh, you know, we do several events, uh, community barbecue, coffee with the cop, national night out, fishing with the police, uh, pancake breakfast. Uh, we assist in the Christmas parade. Um, Citizens Police Academy, we started in, in 2021. Uh, we just started our third class. Um, we love being involved. We have some impromptu stuff uh, scheduled here. Um, coming for uh, spring break for uh, the elementary schools. Very kind of like informal stuff. It doesn't have to be something that costs a lot of money, but you know, we'll go out there and you know, buy ice popsicles and, and go out there at the parks and, and just give kids uh, something from the police so we encourage that positive interaction at a very young age because you know, we're here to protect and serve and, and we want them to view us as positive and, and they can trust us. So our advancements uh, over the past few years, uh, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, you know, we've remodeled the interior of the police department. Uh, we're still busting at the seams there. It is, it is uh, not adequate size, but we're making do with it. Um, and we significantly expanded our training facility. Um, I don't know if, if you all have been to the facility, um, but please uh, get with me and I'll be happy to bring you out there. I can tell you, uh, Four years ago, it was uh, just a uh, rusted um, little covering uh, that we qual <laughs> we qualified at, and now we have a legitimate um, classroom uh, with restrooms, um, and a canine field, and a, a real terrain range, so we can uh, uh, train properly uh, in, in shooting situations uh, and felony stops and things of that nature. Um, and we have. Uh, We've improved our storage of evidence uh, through actual technology where they're audit, audited, uh, where we can see when they're opened and, and whatnot. Um, COVID and the COVID federal grant was able to allow us to purchase a mobile command that doubles as a, a decon trailer. Um, the MRAP, I can tell you I got a little bit of pushback from the MRAP um, when I, I requested it. I got a lot of why would Edgewater need um, an armored vehicle. Um, and then Hurricane Ian came, and everybody realized why we needed it. Um, and then also recently, uh, like I mentioned previously, we uh, the negotiations team is new, the multi-agency negotiation team. Uh, current future challenges. Um, so... 
Our authorized staffing right now is, is for 32 sworn officers and six civilians. Um, so to touch on that, um, we, effect, we eff effectively police. Uh, we're doing a good job with the, lack of a better term, manpower uh, that we have. Um, I think we can provide a much better level of service if we were able to increase the number of police officers. And that's just not based on um, me thinking that or my opinion. Uh, we conduct studies um, that are workload-based um, with, with true um, formulas behind them. And you know those studies reveal that we need between 8 and 14 police officers. Um, so that is something as the city grows and our, and our jurisdiction expands, um, we need to um, start paying really close attention to that and hopefully add some police officers so we can provide a uh, much better level of service as our city grows. Um, right now, uh, one of the major issues with law enforcement is the, the media sentiment. Um, you know, I wouldn't even say public sentiment. Uh, you know, I think the loud minority um, dislikes law enforcement. I think most good citizens see the need for the police. Uh, we have a lot of support here in the community. But when you have that national narrative, um, it, what it does is it, it prevents people from entering the law enforcement profession. So I can tell you when I first started as a police officer, there's a wait list to be a police officer. You could not get a job as a police officer. You had to wait. Uh, and you better be a good applicant or you weren't going to get a job. Um, I can tell you now that there are every agency in Volusia County is hiring. I can tell you that our applications um, are very few. And some of that, so with all of that, when there's a shortage of police officers, there's bad national sentiment, at least from the media, um, what happens is you have a shortage of police officers, and now there's a wage war. So there are um, cities uh, throughout the county who are starting their police officers, their supervisors, um, their entire department at a much higher rate of rate of pay. Um, so that's challenging to overcome to attract uh, new recruits. Um, but that is something that the city is going to have to address um, in the near future, so we can stay competitive. Uh, and, and provide a high level of service. If you saw, and I'm not an expert on what happened in Memphis uh, that made national news recently, um, but I can tell you I read an article, and, and it's the media, so I don't know if it's completely accurate, but I can tell you Memphis PD re, uh, allegedly relaxed their hiring practices, and those officers that were involved in that incident were hired after those practices were relaxed. I do not want to relax the standard of a person we hire as a police officer in the city of Edgewater. So that's a, that's a grave concern for us. Um, but with that, we, we thank you for hearing our presentation. We thank you for our, your support for, for the police department. Um, does anybody have any questions? That was a great, great presentation. Oh, thank you. <laughs> we're ready. We're like, where are they yeah. going to come from? <laughs> And we'd love to have you, Ms. Dalboa, at the Citizens Academy as well. And I know we have one, um, I know you have a very busy schedule. So um, we, we have one running now. Even if you would like to come out there just for, for one day, 
um, for, for whatever, I'll, I'll send you a list of the actual dates of what's occurring. So if you don't come out there for like to see um, maybe when we use firearms um, or the canines or the, or the MRAP introduction SWAT team stuff, I'll send you the list, and if you're able to make it, we'd, we'd love to have you out there. I also think it's cool that I didn't know when I, when I signed up to take it that one of the days will become CPR certified. So if you're not CPR certified already, I think that's cool. You forgot to mention about how the K9 unit is the elite. The narcotics guys. Of the force. <laughs> that hurts, Mr. Mayor. <laughs> no, it doesn't. No, they, I thought it was wonderful. They, our K9 officers are great. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for your presentation. Perfect. Okay. Today we're going to have a very brief overview of the departments that I oversee. And we are going to start off with the fire department first. So we like to brag about the fire department. Uh, fire department, uh, Jeff Laracy, the fire chief, serving since 1991. I've been with Edgewater Fire Rescue since 1991. And Dennis Miski, he's the division chief. He's been serving since uh, 2002. And that's a picture of me when I was skinny in 1991, right there in the background. <laughs> Nobody will believe that. Uh, Too much does <laughs> Yeah. And uh, so Dennis is, is the number two guy. So if you can't get a hold of me, you can reach out to Dennis. History about the fire department. We were an all-volunteer fire department in 1948. So we have our 75th year coming up, anniversary. Um, 1975, the EMS portion of, of Edgewater, I guess you could say rescue, um, it was known as EVER at the time. They combined to make one fire department, one fire rescue department, and that was in 1989. <clears throat> we hired our first paid in 1989. Code enforcement was transferred to the fire department in 2011. Uh, we started conducting ambulance transport in 2012. Uh, animal control was transferred to the fire department in 2013. And we, the city created a public safety director in 2018, and that only lasted for a little bit. And in the same year, we eliminated the public safety director and went back to having a fire chief. Most people are familiar with the fire department, what we do, but um, an overview is emergency medical services. So we respond to a lot of the medical calls throughout our community, ranging from a, you know, a stomach ache to uh, cardiac arrest. Uh, firefighters, we, we fight structure <laughs> fires, automobile fires, wildland fires. We respond to auto, uh, automobile crashes. Um, we, the fire rescue, a lot of people think the rescue and fire rescue means medical, but it doesn't technically. The rescue and fire rescue means uh, technical rescue, such as confined space, water rescue, stuff like that. So that's technically what uh, rescue stands for when you see fire rescue services. Medical is not in our name. You would think it would be, but the general public, I guess, believes that rescue stands for medical, and that works for us, I guess. Uh, we respond to hazmat incidents. Uh, we conduct public education, public outreach, fire prevention. Uh, we conduct fire and life safety inspections. We conduct our fire and arson investigations and, man uh, 
and we oversee emergency management disaster preparedness. This is an overview of our department. Um, starts with me at the top and it works its way down. On your right-hand side is the life safety division. You'll see that uh, right now we have a vacancy for a fire marshal. I'm performing those duties right now. Uh, on the left-hand side is where you're going to see a lot of our, underneath operations, you're going to see a lot of our 2448 guys. Those are the folks that work the shift work. Um, and then we, um, we have some vacancies in there. And that, it says in April, that was approved by the previous uh, council uh, for uh, the filling of three firefighters. Uh, the fire department organizational structure, we have fire admin, life, sa uh, life safety division, and fire operations. Fire admin consists of the fire chief, division chief, and administrative assistant. Fire chief reports to the city manager, primarily, primarily responsible for the efficient operations of the fire department, code enforcement, and animal control. Uh, I also monitor the contract between the city of Edgewater and the animal shelter. Uh, division chief reports to the fire chief, prim primarily responsible for the direct, uh, directing the day-to-day -day operations of the fire department. Administrative assistant, um, that's Chantelle Jackson, that uh, she reports to the fire chief, and her primary responsibilities uh, is to provide administrative support to the, myself and the division chief, and um, takes care of our records and pays, uh, helps process uh, invoices for payment. Life Safety Division is made up of a fire marshal, uh, reports to the fire chief, pri primarily responsible for fire investigations, commercial construction, plan review, community education, issuing permits, and the overall administration of the Life Safety Division. Uh, fire Inspector uh, reports to the fire marshal, primarily responsible for inspecting new and existing businesses for compliance with local and state fire codes. Uh, inspects newly ins installed fire protection systems such as fire alarm systems and sprinkler systems. The department's currently made up of four volunteer firefighters, 15 firefighter EMTs, 15 firefighter paramedics, and three battalions. And those are the, the, the 15 firefighters and the 15 paramedics and three battalions. Those are the ones that are working those shift works, the, the, the one day on, two days off. Uh, we have two, fi two fire stations, fire station on fi uh, 55, which is where our admin's located, 1605 South Ridgewood, and then we have fire station 57 located on Hibiscus. Our fire apparatus, that, our main fire apparatus that we have is three fire engines. Uh, we have a newer one, the 20, 2020, 2015, and 2004. Our 2004 is used as our backup. We have uh, one brush truck that is on loan to us. We don't own it. Um, it's one of those big military brush trucks. Uh, we have two ambulances, a 2016 and a 2010. We have a special operations truck. It's just a big truck with roll-up doors on it that carries all of our technical rescue equipment and extrication equipment. That's a 1998 GMC. And then we have one water tender. That's a 2006. Our daily staffing right now is with two engines. They're advanced life support, so that you know we ride with paramedics, at least one paramedic, and we have one ambulance staffed and one battalion chief. That's our day-to-day -day operations. In May, we hope we hope to hire in April, and then by May, we hope to add a second ambulance. And that's the difference that you'll see between those two. 
The department responded to 4,556 calls for service, and we transported 1,620 patients last year. And that's a typo for the 2019. <laughs> Just notice that. So we'll talk about code enforcement division. Code enforcement officers are responsible for the enforcement of municipal ordinances. Local ordinances are created to promote public health, safety, and to safeguard property values. Studies have confirmed communities with poor uh, conditions tend to attract more crime and have a significant drop in property values. We have two code enforcement officers, one code enforcement supervisor currently vacant. We hope to fill that in April, and one administrative assistant. Uh, the typical code enforcement process is a complaint is received and investigated. If possible, the officer makes contact with the involved part, uh, party owner to uh, effect imminent, uh, immediate correction. So we hope to make, a, uh, you know, if somebody's parking in the right of way, we just ask them just parking on the driveway and correct the violation immediately. If the officer is unable to make contact, a courtesy notice is left at the location or mailed to the owner. If the violation is not corrected, a notice of violation is issued. If the violation is not corrected, a citation is issued, and a hearing is then scheduled uh, with a special magistrate. Sometimes what you'll hear is um, somebody will be very upset that they received, an, uh, they'll say, I've received a citation, and then what we find out is they simply received a courtesy notice, and that's not a citation. A citation is when there's a fine associated it, with it, and we do not issue that many citations in the city. We issue a lot of courtesies, and then 50% of those violations are corrected, and they turn into an actual notice of violation. A notice of violation under state statute, we have to we have to jump through a lot of hoops with those notices uh, for proper notice. So that means that we have to drive a stake in the ground, post the violation or the the, the property that's in violation. We also have to post a copy of that notice of violation at city hall. We also have to mail a um, certified letter to the property owner uh, that's listed on the property appraiser. We also have to send another copy of the notice regular mail. So that means they get a certified copy, a regular copy, a stake drove into the ground at their house, and a copy sent here to City Hall. So there's a lot of steps, and it's uh, sometimes frustrating for somebody that's receiving a notice for something that could be as simple as um, they had tall grass and their mower was broke and it's been fixed, but yet they're getting all these letters in the mail and it's been resolved. Um, we also have to do the same exact thing even if the property is vacant. So if a home is not occupied, we still have to do the same steps. That's Florida law. We're, we we recognize the home is not occupied. We receive several calls from people that, that will tell us, you're wasting your time, you're sending them, you're putting stakes in the ground. We have to do that. Uh, proactive versus reactive. Reactive enforcement uh, relies on complaints to address code violations. This type of enforcement is sometimes challenged in court as a passive enforcement scheme, questionable under the Fourth Amendment challenges, and proactive enforcement utilizes systematic and planned inspections. Proactive code enforcement addresses addressing violations before they become severe. The city of Edgewater um, uh, passed a resolution in 2021 that supports proactive code enforcement measures. So back up to the uh, reactive enforcement, which is primarily what we are. We're primarily uh, reactive. We wait for complaints. And the reason for that most of, 
mostly is because of staffing right now. We're hoping that a, a code enforcement supervisor can come in and, and free up one of our other code officers who is doing a lot of the code enforcement supervisor duties. But an example that protects us from being challenged is if we respond to a complaint for someone who is um, who has tall grass. We have to address all tall grass complaints in that area, in that, in that maybe on that street or that block. And that makes that that has always been able to um, any challenges through the court system, um, municipalities have typically won those cases by addressing all violations. We would probably lose a case if we hit somebody for tall grass and right across the street was tall grass and didn't do anything about it. Um, code enforcement responded to uh, 1,523 total code enforcement cases in 2022. Florida Statute 162.06B, anonymous complaints prohibited. A code enforcement officer may not investigate a potential violation through an anonymous complaint. A person who reports a possible violation must provide, at a minimum, their name and address before an investigation of the complaint may occur. So um, the way the law is written, it, it, it specifically says a code enforcement officer cannot start an investigation, and it says that the, the city or municipality or county government has to receive um, some simple basic information from the complainant. So the concern here is, an example would be, somebody calls the building department or calls you and says, hey, my neighbor has tall grass. Can you do something about it? And you call code enforcement or you go through the cycle and, and, and report that to the, the manager and it gets to me. I have to know who that complainant is. You are government, so you have to provide that or we technically cannot take action. And that's a fairly new law, and I think it went to about two years ago, I think it was, about two years. Uh, the only exception to that, those kind of laws would be uh, uh, health and safety. Uh, somebody calls us and says an exit is blocked or somebody's cutting mangroves. That's an environmental safety issue. Um, we can take action without somebody providing their name. Animal Control Division. Animal Control is responsible for enforcement of city ordinances and Florida state statutes related to domestic animals. The City of Edgewater Animal Control Officer does not respond to wildlife-type incidents and do not trap wild, wild, wildlife animals. Um, we, just like most cities, do not have a license to trap wildlife. One of the biggest things about getting a license to trap wildlife is you have to have uh, a place to take those animals to. And we, um, a lot of your big landowners do not support um, a municipality just coming out and dumping animals onto their property. So um, that's one of the reasons why most cities, such as Edgewater, we do not handle wildlife um, complaints. We have one animal control officer. We also have a contract with Volusia County Animal Control uh, for issues that occur when our animal control officer is not available. Our animal control officer responded to 1,362 total animal control cases in 2022. And the last thing we'll go over is the Edgewater Animal Shelter, and this is the numbers from last year. Uh, animals taken in was 444 animals. 
and adoptions 263 and the return to owners is as you can see very low 85 um, we pay this we the city of Edgewater pays this volunteer organization $72,000 a year and that is to cover 600 animals that allows us the city to bring in 600 animals the animal intakes here are 444 that was not the city of Edgewater the city of Edgewater made up about 250 of those 444 animals. And if you have any questions about those that you've seen. What is the difference between an EMT and paramedic? About two years of school. Okay, so the paramedic has higher? Much higher. They, they're able to push drugs. Yes, that's the biggest thing is they, they're able to administer drugs. Okay. Remember a couple of weeks ago, you and I talked about your second ambulance coming, but I don't remember the date exactly that you stated. Um, we hope to, to uh, ramp up the second ambulance sometime in May. Okay. Um, so we've already hired three firefighters. We're getting them up to speed. We're going to hire three more in April. As soon as we feel comfortable with those three and getting them up to speed, then we're going to add that second, that second ambulance. Another random question. Um, I remember on the one of the slides that mentioned we had a brush truck. I was I was told that we had a brush truck that was down. Is that the truck that is down? That is or the, do we have one that's down and we're borrowing another one? No, we only have one brush truck and that truck is down. It's brakes. The brakes are out. And Public Works is What year is that truck? That. The, brush uh, truck? the brush truck is like a 93. Oh, wow. It's an old military. It's an old military truck. So, and what we're doing, um, and I've talked to the city manager about it, so this wouldn't be a surprise to him is looking at an F-350 for a brush <coughs> truck. And that would be obviously a small brush truck. Mm -hmm. um, it wouldn't replace our big, large brush truck. What do we have now? A big, large military brush truck. Oh, that's right. I can show you. Let's see if I have a picture of it in the background. I know exactly what you're talking about. That's it right okay. there. Wow. So that's located right now. It's It's been out of service for about three months or so for breaks. But that is on loan to us from uh, Florida Forest Service. And what that simply means is we can have it for as long as we want it. We just have to maintain it. Mm. That's the stipulation. And they do come and inspect it. Um, they conduct surprise inspections. I was just asking because I know that this, the one was down, so I wasn't sure if we were borrowing a different one or mm. that was the one in question. No, that's the, that's the one okay. that uh, broke down. It's, it's a good truck. I mean, it definitely has its purposes. And there's also a reason for having a small truck, too. And uh, we used to have a small pickup truck on loan from Forestry, uh, but that truck was a 1985, 1985, and that truck, we just could not maintain it anymore, and it was just not uh, cost-efficient to do that. And so we talked to Forestry, and they allowed us to give that truck back to them in the broken condition that it was in. Um, they allowed that, so that was good. my only question and I toured both stations the other day was I think you were you were you were somewhere else that day but I mean everything you have a great crew going at both places and I appreciate you guys perfect yeah have to set me up at the second station too yeah 
yeah, the second station. The second station was is our oldest station that we have, and the biggest difference that you would see if you when you take a tour is the living accommodations mm -hmm. are different. Um, here at the newer station, they're isolated, so there's a little bit of privacy there, a lot of privacy compared to over at the other station. So that's something that we're having to work on, you know, because we have a diverse workforce now and everything else, and this open bedroom concept worked 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work anymore. So what we've done to mitigate it a little bit is we, when you go in there and you'll see we have lockers now that kind of subdivided a little bit, but it's not as much privacy as we want. So that's one of our biggest goals. Um, so if you, if you take a tour soon, you'll see that we had some air condition work finished. And once we've finished that, we're going to start working on the uh, bunk. I think you were just finishing it up the day I went. Okay, perfect. Yeah, that was a big project. So that's the roof, we had that metal roof put on. That was a grant. We have hurricane impact windows being installed this month. This month we should have impact windows. That, that was a grant. Um, that's, that's really going to help that station. Questions? No, wait, well, I have a question with the Edgewater Animal Shelter. Um, it had 444 um, animals brought to it. What is the, um, I know they're, they're kind of tight with their maximum space of 20 kennels. Um, is there anything in the future going out uh, to help expand that? So we budgeted 150000 in this year's budget, the budget we're in right now. And we're trying to find a way to use the money wisely. Actually, the um, Roxanne and I are working on that now, and it's not a lot of money anymore for a brick-and-mortar building, and so we're looking at it maybe a concept of, I think the biggest difference, first of all, is the way we operate our shelter is completely different than anybody, anybody else. We have air-conditioned kennels. Nobody else does that. So that's, that's what makes it very expensive for us. If we wanted to throw up a a metal building with, you know, cages and ceiling fans, that's what a lot of other operations are like. You know, it's very, very basic. We run, you know, air-conditioned, controlled environment buildings, so it's it's expensive. The other thing is, is if we expand to the existing building, we may have to sprinkler it, a fire sprinkler system. That's the biggest challenge that we have. So we add on to the building and we have to sprinkler it, then that could be 50000 right there just to sprinkler the whole, protect the whole building and the addition. So we're seeing what we have for options. You know, the, the way the contract reads is the concept of the contract between us and a private entity was for the private entity to, to, to not just handle our requirements for the, the uh, taking in some of our dogs and our cats. It's, they're supposed to run and operate a business there. And they were supposed to, and even the, the current contract reads, they're supposed to add on. They're supposed to pay for all that. And then if they were to ever disband, then the city and the and that that contract, contractee, I guess, would negotiate the improvements that they made to our building. It's just not gonna happen. It's they're not, they're not, they're not making the money that they were hoping to make. And it, the location is not the best. I mean, if they were on US one. Maybe they could have more business and make more money. Um, the whole purpose that, that, that the contract was written for was basically to say, this should be your side business. We want you to, to sell uh, 
services and make money. Don't just rely on our contract. But what's happened is, is they really rely a lot on our contract. And that's a lot to do with the economy. So they're not able to, to really build that business more than what it is. So. Great presentation. Thank you. Did you say you have any questions? <laughs> no, I said I have no more questions. Oh, well, I feel like I ask a lot of questions and the people are looking at me to ask things. Aaron, do you have a PowerPoint? Just no. Me neither. <laughs> so, Bonnie, I wasn't sure what you were going to uh, cover. I was going to start with the Sunshine Law, um, then discuss public records, um, okay, and then talk a little bit about our form of city government yep. and the charter a little bit. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'll start uh, by discussing uh, Florida's Sunshine Law, which is really uh, Florida's government in the Sunshine Law, commonly referred to as the Sunshine Law, uh, which provides a right of access to governmental proceedings at both the state and local levels. Uh, the law is equally applicable um, uh, to elected and appointed boards um, and is applicable to any gathering or communication between two members of the same board to discuss some matter which will foreseeably come for that board for action. So of course this means that uh, you all can talk with each other about anything that's unrelated to city business. Um, if if it, uh, any discussion regarding city business or any matter which could foreseeably come before the city council for action must be uh, done at a public open city meeting. Okay. So there's three basic requirements uh, to the Sunshine Law. Meetings of public boards or commissions must be open to the public. Uh, number two, reasonable notice of such meetings must be given. Uh, and three, minutes of the meetings must be taken, promptly recorded, and open to public inspection. So um, advisory boards uh, created pursuant to law or ordinance or otherwise established by public agencies are subject to the Sunshine Law, uh, even though their recommendations are not binding upon the agencies that create them. The only exception to that would be um, fact-finding committees only. Uh, but if the, the committee uh, is going to make any recommendations to you, they are covered by the Sunshine Law. Uh, so neither the legislature nor the courts are subject to the Sunshine Law. Um, there is a constitutional provision that provides access to legislative meetings, but it's not as strict as the Sunshine Law. Um, meetings of staff are not ordinarily subject to the Sunshine Law. However, when a staff member ceases to function in a staff capacity uh, and is appointed to a committee, which is delegated authority normally, normally within the uh, city council, uh, then that staff member loses his or her uh, identity as staff while working on the committee, and the Sunshine Law is applicable to the committee. So it's the nature of the act performed, not the makeup of the committee or the proximity of the act to the final decision, which determines whether a committee composed of staff subject to the Sunshine Law. Um, only the legislature can create exemptions to the Sunshine Law. This requires a two-thirds vote um, and allow a board to close a meeting. So exemptions are narrowly construed. 
um, one e uh, exemption that we use frequently is uh, for litigation. Um, so we are allowed to meet in closed session uh, to discuss settlement negotiations or uh, litigation expenditures, so long as we strictly comply with the statute. And the statute is very specific. We must open the closed meeting uh, in a public meeting. Uh, then we close the meeting. There must be a court reporter present to take down a verbatim transcript of everything that's said. The statute limits who can be in the meeting. Of course, the council attorneys and the city manager are really the only ones allowed to attend, plus the court reporter, of course. Once the litigation is concluded, uh, that transcript of the closed session becomes a public record. Um, and then we have to go back in a, in, uh, to an open meeting to close the closed meeting. Um, we have to uh, always be sure to carefully follow the statute with respect to those meetings. Another exemption relates to collective bargaining, so those can also be closed meetings. All right, so uh, members of public boards or commissions may not use email, text messages, or other electronic communications or the telephone to conduct a private discussion about city business. Um, Members of the council may send a one-way communication to each other as long as the communication is kept as a public record and there's no response to the communication except at an open public meeting. So uh, any one-way communication, for example, one council member wants to forward an article to the other council members for information, really should be distributed through the city clerk um, so that it can be preserved as a public record. Um, and ensure that any response to the communication is made only at a public meeting. So you can get in trouble if you send things to the rest of the council and they respond to it. That two-way communication could be a violation of the Sunshine Law. Um, all right, so um, members of public boards or commissions may not use an electronic newsletter to communicate among themselves on issues that foreseeably may come before the board. Such members may also may not engage on the agency's Facebook page in an exchange or discussion of matters that foreseeably will come before the board for official action. So if someone posts something on a Facebook page, you wouldn't want to respond to that because, again, we're getting then into a two-way communication, which could be a sunshine violation. By the same token, um, if, for instance, if the city manager were to send a, a an email to all of you. Um, you don't want to hit, and you want to say something of substance back to the city manager. You do not want to hit reply all. Because never not, hit reply. Never all. hit reply. Reply all will get you into trouble every <laughs> oh, time. It's so bad, even if it doesn't get you in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so you would just want to talk, talk back to the city manager, which of course is always uh, allowed. Um, Members of public boards or commissions may send a written report to other um, board members on a subject that will be discussed at a public meeting without violating the Sunshine Law. Uh, if prior to the meeting there's no interaction relating to the report um, between the members, um, it also must be maintained as a public record um, and can't be used as a substitute for action at a public meeting. All right, so the Sunshine Law applies everywhere, and it applies 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So that means it applies in the parking lot before the public meeting, in the parking lot after the meeting. It applies during the breaks in the meeting. So you shouldn't be discussing city business during the breaks, only when we're open live uh, at the public meeting. 
Um, all right, so um, while a, a member of a board or commission is not prohibited from discussing board business with staff uh, or a non-board member, um, those individuals cannot be used as a liaison to communicate information between board members. Uh, for example, a board member cannot ask staff to poll the other board members to determine their views on a board issue. Um, along those lines, um, a city manager should refrain from asking members of a public board or commission to state their position on a specific matter, which will foreseeably be considered by the board at a public meeting, in order to provide that information to the other board members. Again, that would mean that the city manager is acting as a liaison between you. Um, that is not allowed. Um, a member of a public board or commission may express his or her views on voting intent on an upcoming matter to a news reporter, so long as the reporter is not being used by the member as an intermediary to circumvent the requirements of the Sunshine Law. The Sunshine Law does not apply to a meeting between individuals who are members of different boards uh, unless one of the individuals has been delegated the authority to act on behalf of his or her board. So, for example, a city council member may meet private, privately with a member of the Planning and Zoning Board to discuss a recommendation made by the board since the two members, uh, since two or more members uh, of either board are not present, um, provided that no delegation of decision-making authority has been made and neither member is acting as a liaison. I have a question just going back to the, um, like, the reporter. Yeah. If you were be, to be approached by a reporter, and you're giving your opinion on something that's maybe happening in the city. Yeah. Uh, you're putting your opinion and your views out there, and with and another another council person sees it, even though you're not interacting with them. That's again, that would be one way communication. Okay, so um, but yeah, I mean, if they, uh, for instance, uh, somehow responded to that back to you, then yes, that would be a two way communication and prohibited. Yeah. Yeah, if they called and said a position otherwise, or yeah, state their opinion. Or yeah. Something. That, that would definitely not be allowed. Um, all right. Um, if it is known that two or more council members are planning to attend and participate in, a, like, for instance, a planning and zoning or other city board or committee meeting, um, it's advisable to note their attendance in the board or committee meeting notice. So the notice for that should say two or more board members may be attending. And we do that on yeah. all of our agendas. That's yeah. an automatic. I've Just in them, case? Yeah, I've got them all set up. So we can attend? Like planning and zoning board? Yeah. Like there was an economic session this you week. Touch on council attending board meetings? So do we do that part? You can do that. Because I wanted to go to the one on, when was that, Wednesday? Yeah, that Yesterday? was canceled. Was it? Um, you, you do want to be cautious going to the other board's meetings, especially ones that will make a recommendation to city council. It can give the appearance or make them uncomfortable with voting the way that they truly feel they, they don't. It, it can make them feel pressured. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes boards then, they like 
chairman could ask me if he wanted to say something or something like that. And it's just, they, they need to be able to do their business with the applicant and whatever members of the public that want to speak on it without a council person overseeing what they're doing, even though so, council does <clears throat> oversee the appointments sure. of the board. Um, I mean, if you wanted to go or just kind of thank them for what they're doing or something, I mean, we could, you know, possibly do that. But I would have just have liked to have gone to the economics. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm not in the loop enough. You also, you also report them, too, I guess, so we could always watch them. Oh, yeah. They're all broadcast, just like the council meeting. They're available afterwards. Um, their agendas are always... You can't always hear them good, though. That's the number one thing. I'd like to fix that sometime this year, too. Um, That's A lot of it, though, is what, it, what you're listening to it on. Um, People complain when they can't hear it. You know? Because you have to kind of go like... Well, yeah. But see, yours is, I love that style. Like at New Smyrna Beach, I went to a youth council meeting, and they were all the way back here, and you could hear them plain as day. They were, and, and, and this is not good because we've had many, many, many times the person sits down, the microphone's there. Yeah, I get that. And they do, that. That is a big problem that I used to have. Um, I just hate having to go like this when I was speaking. And, and, and you, you, you don't. I mean, we just sit up to the dais and you're facing forward. It is going to pick you up. Um, it's a, a lot of times the issue happens when, and I'm not saying that any of you are doing it. Those are just issues that I have seen. I mean, I, I, I don't have to mention the school board that's yeah. sitting back here. Um. And I know listening to it, like, I can't hear the council meetings on my phone, but I have no problem when I sit down at my computer after the council meeting hearing it. I've, yeah, somewhat. And do you control the volume? It's because set. Okay. The audio people set it. Because um, when we got here, um, I believe it was the last council meeting, and I first said the pledge, you could hear me wonderful and then the second I sat back down you could barely hear me hmm. well, I didn't have any problems listening to the meeting afterwards now one thing like the speakers right up here mm -hmm. the volume is turned way down on them okay. because if that volume is up and we're all speaking into those microphones we're going to have feedback mm -hmm. and it's going to be that horrible awful squeak mm -hmm. um, which is why we don't sound like we're going through the microphones, mm -hmm. but I've got a monitor over here that I can see the level and that whether or not it's picking up and how loud it goes. And, um, and I, I do just, pay attention to that. I just know it's a good point. Maybe we can figure out something. Um, and I, I Let, down the line. Too. That's not why we're here today. Yeah. I'm just, yeah. 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 Fuck you. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I know. <laughs> Was watching the other committee meetings online. I guess that's where we're at. It's, it's, it really is, yeah. is best right. to do that. Yeah, and uh, if <clears throat> two or more of you were to attend another board meeting and de debate an issue between you, that is a violation of the 
that could be another reason, maybe just to watch them on video as opposed to the person they were attending. Um, all right. Um, so um, boards and councils may adopt reasonable rules and policies to ensure orderly conduct of the meetings. Um, but the Sunshine Law does not allow boards to ban non-disruptive videotaping, tape recording, or photography at public meetings. So as long as it's not it's not it's non-disruptive, it's allowed. So I was told that they would get with you about this. What if someone comes up and they just start using foul language, cursing? Right. And it's not a council member. Right. And, and we have a um, we have a policy regarding that. But it comes down to um, whether it's disruptive or not, you know, because there is a First Amendment issue there. And in one case, uh, a member of the public used one uh, swear word, uh, but it was all wrapped up in political speech. Mm -hmm. So the court said, yeah, they should not have ejected that person for using one swear word. Well, but we've had other occasions when people are just out of control with the cursing. Had a uh, Boy Scout troop in here. I remember at one meeting, and this guy was using the F word over and over. It was totally inappropriate. I think that rose to the level of being disruptive. Um, and we can get to that in a little while, but you may have the uh, option of giving them a warning, a warning first, that they, you know, if they don't stop this, you know, disrupting the meeting with their foul language or whatever they're doing, then uh, they'll be removed from the meeting. So after the warning, um, if they continue, you can have one of the police officers here escort them out of the meeting. But it has to be disruptive. I think that's okay. what it comes it. down to. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, of course, um, council meetings have to be uh, open to the public. That means they should be held in buildings that are open to the public. So you know, meetings should not be held ever in private homes. Um, the phrase open to the public means open to all those who choose to attend. So, you know, boards are not authorized to exclude some members of the public, like, you know, for instance, city employees or vendors. Um, okay. So by statute, um, boards are required to provide a reasonable opportunity to be heard uh, by the public uh, before the board takes official action on a proposition. Some limited exemptions like uh, approving minutes, ministerial acts like that. But otherwise, the public has a right by statute to be heard on any proposition before the board or council before final action. All right. Um, so the Sunshine Law extends to the discussions and deliberations as well as the formal action taken by a board or commission. There's no requirement that a quorum be present or that an item be listed on a board agenda in order for a meeting uh, of members of the public board or commission to be subject to the Sunshine Law. So the law is applicable to any gathering, whether formal or casual, of two or more members of the same board or commission to discuss some matter which foreseeably will be uh, come before the board for action. Um, okay, as far as agendas, uh, Remember, there's only really three uh, requirements uh, for under the Sunshine Law. The meeting must be in public, there must be reasonable notice of it, and there must be minutes. So we come now to agendas. So the agendas are technically not legally required. However, the Attorney General strongly uh, suggests and recommends that you only take action on agenda items. 
because if it's not on the agenda, then the public doesn't have notice that you're going to be you know, thinking about it and possibly voting on it. So, and I strongly recommend that unless it's an emergency, you only take action on agenda items. All right, so minutes must be kept. Um, uh, minutes contemplates a brief summary uh, or series of brief notes or memoranda reflecting the events of the meeting. A verbatim transcript is not required. Um, and the Sunshine Law does not require that meetings be tape recorded. There are penalties um, for violation. Uh, any member of a board or commission um, or municipal corporation or political subdivision who knowingly vi violates the Sunshine Law is guilty of a misdemeanor of the second degree. Uh, an unintentional violation might, may be prosecuted as a non-criminal infraction resulting in a civil penalty of up to $500. Um, the Sunshine Law also provides that no resolution, rule, regulation, or formal action shall be considered binding except as taken or made at an open meeting. Um, so recognizing that the Sunshine Law should be construed so as to frustrate all evasive devices, the courts have held that action taken in violation of the uh, Sunshine Law was uh, void ab initio or from the inception. So anything out of the Sunshine is simply void. All right, so the case law all holds that as a statute enacted for the public benefit, the Sunshine Law should be liberally construed to give effect to its public purpose, while exemptions should be narrowly construed. Um, so if a board member is unable to determine whether a meeting is subject to the Sunshine Law, he or she should either leave the meeting or ensure that the meeting complies with the Sunshine Law. All right, so that's a brief overview, very brief, of the Sunshine Law. Um, <laughs> So just, I mean, it's pretty basic. If you're talking about city business, uh, you must only talk to each other at an open public meeting. Uh, that includes text messages, emails, letters, smoke signals, anything. <laughs> None of that's allowed if you're talking about city business. <laughs> All right. Um, so then I, I can move on to the Public Records Act. Public Records Act provides a right of access to records of state and local governments, uh, as well as to private entities acting on their behalf. So that right of access is recognized in our state constitution, uh, which applies to virtually all state and governmental entities, uh, including the, le the legislative, executive, and judicial branches of the government. Um, and the only exceptions are those established by law or by the constitution. Um, so. Chapter 119 is our public records law, um, and that statute defines public records to include all documents, papers, letters, maps, books, tapes, photographs, films, sound recordings, data processing software, or other material, regardless of the physical form, characteristics, or means of transmission made or received pursuant to law or ordinance or in connection with the transaction of official business by an agency. Um, so, that is a very broad definition, you know, it includes text messages, emails, all electronic communication, as well as, you know, um, uh, paper documents, recordings, and so forth. Um, the key here uh, is that your personal text messages and emails are not public records, but your ones uh, relating to city business are public records. Um, okay. 
All right. So the definition is so broad, uh, the Florida Supreme Court has interpreted this definition to encompass all materials made or received by an agency in connection with official business, which are used to perpetuate, communicate, or formalize knowledge. All such materials, regardless of whether they are in final form or open for public inspection, unless there's an exemption created by the legislature for disclosure. Um, and the statute, most of the statute relates to all these uh, exemptions. It's quite long. There's numerous exemptions. For instance, uh, home addresses of law enforcement officers are exempt. That is not, those are not public records. Um, okay. There is a limited exemption for certain uh, litigation work product of agency attorneys. That's me, but it's very limited. Uh, most communications between us are, are going to be a public record. Uh, the exemption for attorney work product only really relates to mental impressions or conclusions of uh, an attorney about the pending litigation. So it's quite narrow. Of course, the uh, public records law um, includes email messages made or received by public officers or employees in connection with official business. Um, the Attorney General has advised that materials placed on an agency's Facebook page uh, would presumably be in connection with official business, and they are subject to the Public Records Act. All right, as far as providing public records, the statute provides that every person who has custody of a public record shall permit the record to be inspected and copied by any person desiring to do so at any reasonable time under reasonable conditions and under supervision by the custodian of public records or the custodian's designee. Uh, the Public Records Act requires no showing of purpose or special interest as a condition of access to public records. Uh, and so unless authorized by law, an agency may not ask the requester to produce identification as a condition to providing public records. You also can't ask why they want them. Um, so a custodian is not authorized to not deny a request to inspect or copy public records because of a lack of specifics in the request. All right, so the Public Records Act does not contain a specific time limit for compliance. Um, uh, so you're allowed a reasonable time. The Florida Supreme Court has stated that the only delay in producing records um, is the reasonable time allowed the custodian to retrieve the, the record and delete those portions um, that the custodian asserts are exempt. Nothing in the uh, statute requires that the requesting party make a demand for public records in person or in writing. Custodian is not required to give out information from the records of his or her office, however. So, for example, the Public Records Act does not require a town or city to produce an employee, such as the financial officer, to answer questions regarding the documents. Um, the Public Records Act uh, only requires the city to produce documents that it has in its possession, so the city is not required to produce new records. Um, for instance, if someone wanted chart or table compiling the documents, and the city doesn't have that, the city is not required to create that to produce to the person requesting the records. Okay. 
All right, so a custodian of a public record who contends that a record or part of it is exempt from inspection must state the basis for the exemption, including the statutory citation to the exemption. Uh, additionally, uh, uh, upon request, the custodian must state in writing and with particularity the reasons for the conclusion that the record is exempt from inspection. All right, and there is a difference um, between records the legislature has determined to be exempt from the Public Records Act and those which the legislature has determined to be exempt from the act and con also confidential. If information is made confidential in the statutes, uh, the information is not subject to inspection uh, by the public and may be released only to those persons and entities designated in the statute. On the other hand, if the records are not made confidential but are simply exempt, um, the agency is not prohibited from disclosing the documents in all circumstances. So the general rule is that records which otherwise uh, would be other, would otherwise be public under state law are unavailable for public inspection only when there is an absolute conflict between federal and state law relating to the confidentiality of records. Uh, if a federal statute requires particular records to be closed and the state is clearly subject to the to the provisions of that statute, then pursuant to the supremacy clause of the the U.S. Constitution, the state must keep the records confidential. That doesn't come up very often. Fees can be collected uh, for producing the public records. Um, the statute authorizes the imposition of a special, a special service charge to inspect or copy records when the nature or volume of the public records to be inspected uh, is such as to require extensive use of information technology resources or extensive clerical or supervisory assistance or both. Charge must be reasonable and based upon the labor uh, or computer costs actually incurred by the agency. Uh, if there's no fee prescribed elsewhere in the statutes, um, the statute authorizes the custodian to charge a fee of up to 15 cents per one-sided copy, um, and then five uh, additional five cents for each two-sided. The courts have upheld uh, an agency's requirement of a reasonable deposit or advance payment in cases where a large number of records have been requested. Uh, in such cases, the fee should be communicated to the requester before the work is undertaken. There are penalties for violating the statute. Uh, a person who's been denied the right to inspect or, co or copy public records uh, may bring a civil action against the agency to enforce the terms of Chapter 119. Uh, in addition to the judicial remedies, uh, the statute provides that a public officer who knowingly violates the provisions of Chapter 119 is subject to suspension and removal or impeachment and is guilty of a misdemeanor of the first degree. Um, attorney's fees are also available for violations of the Public Records Act. Um, the statute provides that if a civil action is filed against an agency to enforce the Public Records Act and the court determines the agency unlawfully refused to permit a public record to be inspected or copied, the court shall assess an award against the agency responsible the reasonable cost of enforcement, including attorney fees. So that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> so uh, your private emails, text messages, and so forth that don't relate to city business are not public records. If they were, if there was a public records request, you would only have to produce matters relating to city business. And if they're intermixed, unfortunately, you'd have to call out all the private ones that are mixed in with the city business 
and that's why we give you a city email address in the iPad and highly suggest right everything. it makes it much simpler you know if you start using your personal phone personal email account to do city business then it's legitimate to do private personal ones that are not public records all right so that's an overview of the public records um, act so next topic <laughs> would be uh, the form uh, we have here for uh, city government. Uh, of course, we have the uh, city council, city manager form of government. Um, in our uh, form of government, the city manager is the chief administrative officer of the city. Uh, the city manager supervises and coordinates the departments, appoints and removes their directors, prepares the budget for the council's consideration, and makes reports and recommendations to the council. Of course, all department heads report to the city manager, and the city manager is fully responsible for municipal administration. And the council is expected to abstain from seeking to individually interfere in administrative matters, including actions in personnel matters. So the city council is responsible for policymaking, and the city manager is responsible for city administration. And the way this is set up like this is to take politics out of the city administration. So the city manager stays out of politics and administers the city. Uh, and the city council uh, is political, of course, and sets policy for the city. And the city charter is very specific about this. Um, so I just wanted to point that out to you real quickly. All right. So under the charter, uh, the charter states, neither the city council nor any of its members shall in any manner dictate the appointment or removal uh, of any city administrative officer or employee whom the city manager or any subordinate of the city manager is empowered to appoint. But the city council may express its views and fully and freely discuss with the city manager anything pertaining to appointment and removal of such officers and employees. All right, the charter goes on to state, um, except for purposes of inquiries and information gathering, the city council or its members shall not deal with city officers and employees who are subject to the direction and supervision of the manager, except through the city manager. Neither the city council nor its members shall give orders to any officer or employee, either publicly or privately. Nothing in the foregoing is to be construed to prohibit individual members of the city council from closely scrutinizing through questions and personal observation all aspects of city operations so as to obtain independent information to assist the members in the formulation of sound policies to be considered by the city council. Um, it is the express intent of this charter, however, that recommendations for improvement in city operations by individual council members be made to and through the city manager so that the city manager may coordinate efforts of all city departments to achieve the greatest possible savings through the most efficient and sound means available. So this, the city charter um, follows the basic city council, city manager form of government, very, and it's very specific. Other charter provisions that are of note, um, the city charter does require three votes to pass an ordinance or resolution which really would only come up if two, or, uh, if two members of the council were absent. If two members were absent, then you would need, it would need to be unanimous. You would have to have three votes to pass an ordinance or resolution. And that has come up in the past where we had two members absent. Um, so I wanted 
you to be aware of that. The difficulty when we have only four members, right. if we have a two to two vote, right. then it fails. Yes. <laughs> and a quorum is three. Yes. So unless three of you are here, <laughs> you cannot conduct any city business. And that's in the charter yes. as well. Um, what else? Those are things that Aaron and I will have to remember. If it, ha if it comes up, we'll look <laughs> at each other up. and say who wants to say it. <laughs> All right. So there's um, a section in the charter relating to forfeiture of office. So if a council member is absent from three consecutive regular council meetings without being excused by the council, that's grounds for forfeiture. Three consecutive without being excused. Um, other reasons to forfeit your office would be um, violating the standard of conduct or code of ethics established by law. Uh, if you lack at any time during the term of office for which you were elected any qualification for the office prescribed by this charter or by law, so if you were to move out of the district you were elected in, that would be grounds for forfeiture because you would lack the qualifications. Um, other grounds for forfeiture would be violating any express prohibition of this charter, uh, being convicted of a felony, blah, 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 or convicted of a first-degree misdemeanor arising out of your official conduct. So those are just some parts of the charter that I wanted to point out. Now, we touched on the policy. You really have a, a meeting policy, although it's titled Executive Administrative Policies and Procedures. Aaron, I have a question before we move on. Yep. Um, so I'm going back to um, as far as the council going to the city manager if there's uh, something going on with a department. Yes. Um, so if a resident were to come to me and say, there's a pothole in front of my house and there for, has been there for two months. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't reach out to to Randy and say, hey, there's a pothole. I should go to Glenn and say, yeah. Mr. Irby, um, there's a resident who called me and this is a problem. You know, can we address it? Yes, because otherwise it, the employee could view, be, view that as you're ordering them to fix the pothole, right. which is you know, specifically uh, not allowed in the charter. So yes, okay. definitely go through the city manager. And another thing that I always would do, um, more so in years past before cell phones were more prevalent and, and whatnot, when a resident would call, sometimes they would just call and want to talk to their council person or talk to the mayor. Because um, sometimes that's just the automatic, that that's the person who I think I need to speak with. And I would always, you know, absolutely, you know, give the phone number, but I would always offer to see if there was something that I could do to help. Um, and your pothole is always my example. Yes. yes. Um, that they're like, well, you know, there's a pothole at the end of my driveway. Okay. Have you spoken with environmental services? Nine times out of ten, the answer is no. Fortunately, I can transfer them to environmental services. You guys can give them that. You guys can also ask that same question. Um, because if you ask them that question and they've not spoken with that department, you can absolutely give them the phone number to call. And because of the way the charter's written and because of the type of government that we have, nine times out of ten, if they call, we're just going to stick with the pothole, call environmental services, they either didn't know about it, so they're going to go check it and add it to their list, or they can look and see, yes, we know about that one. We have the asphalt truck coming on whenever it's coming and let them know that. 
they can get an answer quicker. It's something that you can offer. I'm, I'm not trying to say, tr you know, try and talk them into doing that. Right. And like the way I would always do it is, you know, if I could help them, have you spoken to them? Here, let me transfer you. Normally, they then don't need to go to you guys because it, it gets addressed. Um, and probably quicker than you calling the city manager who's calling that person who's then having to check with the admin person to see where it is on the list. Right. Um, but, you know, so it, it's, all, it's just also another option that you can do. It's not, um, you're not trying to avoid helping them. You actually are helping them by guiding them to the correct department. Um, you know, if they say yes, you know, I've talked to them, I've gotten nowhere, I've gotten no answer, whatever the case may be. Obviously, you know, you, you would certainly want to speak with the city manager about that then if that was the case. But it's just another option, you know, something else that you can do and it is still helping the resident by getting them to the correct person. Right, right. All right, so getting to your executive administrative policies and procedures. Um, this uh, policy, um, again, recognizes that under the charter, if a member of the city council is absent for three consecutive regular council meetings without being excused by the council, the member must forfeit their office. But then it goes on to state in this policy, in order for the member to be excused, they must disclose their reasons for absence either in writing to the city clerk prior to the meeting or personally describe for the record at the next meeting uh, they are in attendance. Um, the city council shall vote to determine if excused or unexcused, uh, and a member of the city council may request for consideration of vote for excused absences for any planned absence um, you know, prior to being absent. So I just wanted to let you know that's in your, your city policy. All right, also in this policy, uh, there's a section relating to um, motions, and it states, uh, if a motion has either been adopted or defeated during a meeting, only a member who voted on the winning side may have the vote reconsidered. Such a member on the winning side may make a motion for the reconsideration. A defeated motion may only be brought back up by a member on the winning side either during the same meeting or one other time within a 12-month period from the initial meeting What's when such motion was defeated. Because in the past, there was times when someone kept trying to bring up the same matter that was already voted on over and over, you know. So um, it can be reconsidered just once. Um, if you are present, um, this policy also uh, reiterates the statute that requires that if a member is present at a meeting, They must vote, uh, and their vote shall be recorded or counted um, for each member present uh, unless there is a possible conflict of interest of that member. Um, and if there is, uh, the, the member should state the, what the possible conflict of interest is on the record, abstain from voting, and then you fill out a voting conflict form after the meeting. You're only going to have a voting conflict if the vote relates to your special private gain or loss. Uh, or the special private gain of, uh, or loss of your spouse, relative, business, employer, or business associate. And private gain or loss means financial. So 
very, very quite limited. But if you're not sure, you can always just call me before the vote. Um, and if, if you do think you might have a possible conflict of interest, you can sort of abstain from voting and just state on the record why you think you might you might have a conflict of interest and then fill out the form after the meeting. But other than that, if you are here, you are required to vote by statute. Uh, let's see. Okay, here we go. Um, you mentioned mayor um, conduct by the public at these meetings. And, you know, your policy does state no personal, verbal, and or physical attacks towards any individual by the city council staff or citizens will be allowed during the city council meeting. Any person making personal, impertinent, or slanderous remarks or becoming boisterous while addressing the council or attending the council meeting shall be removed from the city council chambers by the chief of police or any police officer if so directed by the mayor or presiding officers. Unauthorized remarks from the audience, such as stamping of feet, whistles, yells, or similar demonstrations shall result in the person being removed by the chief of police or any police officer if so directed by the mayor or presiding officer. Um, all right, if the mayor or presiding officer determines a person shall be removed from the proceedings pursuant to this provision, he or she shall first give a warning, and if the language or behavior continues, issue the director uh, for removal uh, from uh, of the person from the proceedings. Additionally, the city council may issue a directive for a warning and subsequent removal by motion and majority vote for language or behavior that violates this provision. So yeah, I mean, but it, I think it, for someone to be removed, they would need to be disruptive uh, under all the case law. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it is great we say they shouldn't curse, you know, but um, Fortunately, or they do have a First Amendment right, and case law has allowed some cursing mixed in with political speech. Oh, I got it. So, yeah. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to point those sections out of your your meeting policy. Are there any questions? I know I <laughs> flooded you with information. You can always call me. Yes. Call me anytime you have any questions about anything. I want to know a little bit about you. Hmm. All right. Um, let's see. Uh, I graduated from law school in 1988, so I've been practicing about 34 years now. Um, been the Edgewater City Attorney since uh, 2011. I'm also representing the school board. I've done school board work for about 28 years now. In Volusia? More recent, I'm sorry? In Volusia or just? Yeah, in Volusia. Yeah, oh. mm -hmm. since 94. Um, mostly litigation. Um, but more recently, I've uh, become the actual board attorney. So I do sit with the school board at their meetings, which are held on Tuesday, so they don't conflict with the Edgewater meetings. Um, so. Gotcha, gotcha. Where'd you go to law school at? Florida State. Okay. Yeah. Wait, so you permanent? Yes. So you gotta do the go no. Yeah. Oh, they did the go Weber. Yeah. You misspelled that. That was the thing earlier today. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it sure was. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> well, again, if you have any questions that ever come up. I give calls about potential conflicts of interest, voting conflicts of interest, and things like that. I'm happy to answer them. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
public records request requesting access to whenever you get friendly family friends with somebody and they want to build say a development family friend no um, the statute's real specific on voting conflicts um, and a friend would not be included uh, a relative would be included spouse um, your business business associate or employer would be included for voting conflicts Unless, of course, Got you it. had any financial interest in it. Sure. <laughs> then, it's, then it's your deal. You know, sure. So, right. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Got it. Okay. Well, very good. Thank you. Good to see you. Thank you, Aaron. It's my pleasure. Am I the last speaker? Nope, I am. Oh, okay. <laughs> what are you going to cover, Bonnie? So I'm going to tell them, like, what else I do. Yes. <laughs> because nobody ever seems to know that. Oh, I know what you do. Oh, but we've you seen don't. it. <laughs> I just assume you do everything. A whole lot more than what you guys actually see. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and start with a little bit about me. So I've been with the city since 2000. I started out as planning secretary, and then I was promoted to planning technician. From there, I was appointed city clerk in 2008, where I held that position until 2015. Um, and for some personal reasons, I stepped down and went back to the planning department and was senior planner until 2020. And when the clerk who replaced me was retiring, I just thought it was an opportunity to get back in and try and accomplish some more of the things that I didn't get accomplished the first time around. Um, I got my certified municipal clerk Weird, my certified municipal clerk certification, my CMC, in 2010. Um, and while I, when I went back to the planning department, I did maintain that certification. Um, I think there was something in the back of my head that knew I would always try and get back here. Um, my bachelor's degree is from Daytona State, so I'm not sure where my bachelor's degree came from. Through the Falcon. Um, but I did it all online. So which I don't recommend. You still got to say go Falcons. You don't? Go Falcons. Okay. No, well, if you're working full-time, because it's a great program. It's not that. If you're working full-time, there's seven-week classes. 16 <laughs> weeks worth of work in seven weeks. Very difficult. Very difficult. Um, I did be. it. I did it. <laughs> so, um, so that was a little bit about me. Um, and I did want to... I've kind of always felt that the councils, not just you guys, it's every council I've ever worked with, they don't know what the city clerk does. I do much more than the agendas and the minutes and put your mail on the dais. Um, so I just did want to talk about some of the other stuff that we do. Um, so aside from um, generating the agendas, where Aaron was talking about the public notices for the meetings. I pay attention to all the other boards, make sure they're doing their notices properly. We, of course, take care of the notices for city council. The agendas get posted in my office at City Hall, on our website, 
rid of that. Um, certain items that are on the agenda, mostly ordinances. Florida statute dictates legal advertisements in a newspaper for those. Majority of them, I only have to advertise at second reading. Um, and I make sure all of those are done and get those those legally required advertisements done. Because um, if I don't get the advertisement done, then I have to pull the item off the agenda for you from you. Um, as Aaron was talking about the public records, per the charter, I am a charter officer of the city, and I am the official custodian of all of the city's records. And that includes dealing with all of the public records requests. Um, the exemptions that he was speaking about, I don't know them all. They, the statute says there's limited exemptions. The limited exemptions are very, very high numbers. Um, so, I mean, I am required to know them. If I don't, I've got to find it because I am required to make sure if something is exempt or confidential that it doesn't get given out. But on the flip side of that, I'm required to make sure that something that is public record is not redacted. It's very much a double-edged sword. So um, that is a big part of my job. Um, and we also maintain all of the records of the city. We have a couple thousand boxes of records. The records have various retentions. Some go from... I made myself a note, I took care of that, I don't need it anymore, to it has to be kept forever. And we're working on getting all that stuff digitized. Very, very long process. But um, of my total department of two and a half, my, not a half person, but my half, Lisa, um, she came back to scan. So she's been scanning a lot of the documents that are archived. Um, well, actually, she really hasn't gotten to that yet because there's just so much other stuff elsewhere that has to be scanned. Um, and that's we have a digital program that that's where all that goes. And I always just say that's the digital version of our archive boxes. So everything, it's either in Laserfish, that program, or it's in a box. Yeah. Going forward, um, is everything you do now digital? Or is it still paper you have to still scan? Oh, we still have to scan a lot of stuff. But what we do not do any longer, and probably 2012, 2014, we stopped. We don't get more boxes. Department, like finance scans their stuff. The department scan their stuff. Now, we end up getting the paper because I manage the destruction. Nothing can that none of that stuff can be destroyed without my signature, but we also have to verify what's scanned that everything is there because we we literally destroy the documents. So once they're destroyed, there's no getting it back, and that's what the law requires. Um, we don't want to be able to piece it back together. Um, so we we still get it, but fortunately, it's not going on a shelf more than I have to find that piece of paper. It's it's digital. So big difference. 
and, and it certainly makes things a whole lot easier whether I'm pulling records through a public records request. All the department heads have access to LaserFish um, to varying degrees. There's some things that we don't have access to in there at all. Um, but like Darren, most of his files are last few years are in there. Older stuff we haven't gotten to yet. But, um, but he can go in there and look for some things rather than ask me to pull the box and bring it to him. So it definitely makes a difference. We do have a long way to go, but we are actively working on that. It's, um, it's an undertaking. So um, that, that's, an, that's another big part um, is just making sure we have what we're supposed to have. It's also equally important to destroy records that have met their retention that don't have a historical value. There's a cost to storing them. Whether it's, and we do actually store at a company called Iron Mountain. There literally is a cost to that. But there's also a cost to having them here on site and secured. You know, um, so that's something else that we do work on. Um, also, I make sure all of the legal ads are done for the city because um, sometimes I get them regarding our bid process. The chlorine burn that Randy talked about earlier this morning, they have to do a legal notice for that. So they send that to me. Um, I'm just kind of the clearinghouse for that piece of stuff. Kind of the clearinghouse for a lot of things. Um, pretty much everything that I do is coming from every department. And then a lot of the stuff gets pushed back out depending on what it is. Um, I also deal with any claims somebody files against the city, whether it's garbage truck hit their mailbox, car accidents, um, water or sewer pipe. Um, I deal with all of those. Sometimes we handle them in-house. Sometimes they go to the insurance. It's, it's different. Um, but all vehicle accidents with city vehicle. I handle all of those. And by that, I work with the insurance. Obviously, I'm not an insurance person. So, but um, lawsuits, they would come to me first, obviously. They would then get passed on to the attorney because I'm not an attorney either. Um, but I do have to, to work with all of that. Um, we do all the liens for the city. Code enforcement liens, utility liens, alarm liens. We create the liens, we record them, we do the satisfactions, and we maintain the database of the liens. Um, the alarm program, I don't know if any of you are familiar. I was about to say. I was about to ask what an alarm lien was. So, so what, what the alarm program is, is any, any business or resident that has a security alarm or fire alarm that... Sort of. <laughs> um, so if it just makes a noise and it doesn't call like 911 or whatever, it's not monitored, someone would not have to register it. But if it, if it is monitored and your alarm goes off and the alarm company calls the police to respond to your residence or, or business, all of those alarm systems are required to be registered with us. If it's registered within 30 days of activation, there is no charge. The purpose for this is, Councilwoman Dalbo had mentioned the three strikes. So when police and fire 
police or fire respond to a false alarm. We've taken an officer off the street to go where my kid did it, I forgot to shut it off, you know, whatever. Um, when it continuously happens at the same location, we do have a service charge or a fine for that. Because it is pulling those very important resources off the road for that. So, what if the person's not home? Is it still, if it's a false alarm, but it's not? Yeah, if it's if it's a false alarm, it's a false alarm. Um, I mean, if nobody is there, you know, they will look around to see that. You but know, will they get charged and... eventually if it happens more than say? So it's twice in a year? three times in a six month period. Oh, six months. Yeah, um, and that's been in effect since nineteen ninety something. I didn't know um, if it was a year or six months. Yeah, it's a six. And what it is, it's a six month period. So it's not January through June. I, I got you. Um, and a lot of people, it happens once. And when we do get the report from the police or the fire department, we do notify the property owner. So if it's an issue, and sometimes it is, it's an issue with their alarm itself. Fortunately, they'll usually get it fixed if that's the case, because they don't want the fine. Um, but we maintain that system. Um, so when someone registers, we put that in the system, we send them a decal, and we do maintain when there's false alarms through police or fire, those reports are provided to us, and, and we maintain those and take care of contacting the property owners and all of that. Um, I also oversee the codification of our ordinances. So certain ordinance, ordinances that the council adopts go into, so when we're changing Article 19 of the Code of Ordinances or something like that. That's the black book that you guys have. I make sure that that gets sent to Muni Code for the codification so it actually gets into the book. Um, all agreements. I take care of all of those, whether it's writing them or just getting them signed. Um, of anything anybody needs. Um, we are here to support not only the council but all of the department heads. Sometimes it is research. When was something adopted? Um, we just, it's sometimes just easier for us to do that. Aside from Laserfish, we do have some other means to find that information. Um, and because we have all the records and we have access to all of the records. So um, we do that, we have to do that a lot. Um, never like one specific department or anything. It's runs the gamut. And um, I know if I don't know who to call, I just call you. Mm -hmm. We're we're sort of the four one one of the city for city staff and the residents. For the most part, we're going to know where someone might need to go to get assistance, and it's not always a city department that they need to go to. Could be other agencies. Um, and especially for, you know, city departments, you know, if I don't know, I know how to find out. And I can get that information for you. Um, outside agencies, 
If I don't know, really my option is Google. So, um, but that's a lot of what we do. And obviously the council agendas, minutes, everything afterwards. And um, I think that's about it. And touching, touching on some of the stuff that Aaron spoke about with some of those policies, I'm working on a handbook for all of you guys. I'm going to have those policies in there. Send out some information on Sunshine and public records and all of that stuff. Anyway. Um, and the other thing I did want to mention to you, I don't know if you all are familiar with our resident handbook. Fabulous little publication. There are a couple at the back. Um, the city's been doing them for many, many years. I think they're in your office, too. Yes, they're in, my, they're in my office on the window out by Monique. It has all the contact information. Um, we update it yearly, so it has the holiday schedule for trash and refuse. It has the utility billing schedule when the bills are going out, when they're due. A um, little description of all the departments, a little description of all of the advisory boards, the different events that we have in the city. We did, we did put the calendar of events in it this year. Um, previously, we would just kind of like overview of what they are um, it, it's got contact information for you know the phone number for the post office Daytona State College the different elementary schools and it, it's got a lot of information um, it is also available on the website that's a nice cute little book though um, but we do have them here we have them in my office every person that opens up a utility account gets one from customer service we do have them here um, I will make sure that you guys each do get a copy of it. Um, the site just says a resident of the city. It's a great tool. But it also would be really helpful and a good resource for you guys if somebody does ask you a question. Um, sometimes the answer might actually be in there, um, aside from it'll help you out on who they would need to speak to. And, you know, it's one of those healthy things. You come get it. They can, you know, they can look, look at it on the website. They can print it. Um, but we, we love to give those away because they are a great resource. So, um, is there anything else? Have we ever done like a mass mailing of those since we started doing them and like sent them to everyone? That would be really, really expensive. Because it would, like if we did it based on utility accounts, there's over 10,000 utility accounts, probably would cost a couple dollars each to mail them. Because they're about 40 pages. So, um, yeah, it would be very expensive. Yeah, and they change yearly. So, I what it might be if take the different businesses and they just stack every business so people come in and out. Maybe they don't attend City Hall to pay their water bill, or maybe they don't attend council meetings, mm -hmm. uh, but they might go to uh, the hairdresser. And you know, I'm just making examples. Mm -hmm. but, I mean, that's just a thought. I mean, if you wanted to try to get out there to more people, I love that idea. YMCA, and I don't. Gyms. I think the YMCA has them. Um, I don't think so. Or they haven't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, it would be hard to do businesses because how, how do I ask this business? Well, you put these there, but I, I'd have to ask every, every business. business. Yes. Um. And that's why it is available on the website, so people don't have to go. I mean, they can. It's about Facebook. 
it, I mean, it's a 43-page book. So, um, God. I mean, Jill can certainly put a link to it on Facebook, to the website. But I don't <clears throat> think it's something that would really be good for Facebook. Um, yeah. God. Um, but, but we, you know, we do have it available in, you know, my office, in here. Like I said, everybody that opens a utility account gets one because they're always asking us for more. So I know they're either eating them or giving them out. And, um, and, and even for each of you guys, I mean, it's, um, I've had council people, you know, can, can you make me 10? And they've given them out at various places that they've gone, you know, with just talking to people. It's like, oh, here you go. We certainly do that, you know, for each of you. Um, you know, we can start off with five or 10. Use them. Just let me know. We can make you more. Like that's not, you know. So, um, but it is a really great resource. It, it really is, um, and it is updated every year. Which that one's not updated. We just finished the new one. So, um, and I know like Monique keeps one on her desk. That way, if someone asks something, it's just an easy place for her to go to. Here's the phone number for whichever. So. Um, On a side note, I'll be ordering your shirts. I just have not had an opportunity to do that. I have gotten the pictures back. I just have not gotten an opportunity to send them out and get them on the website in order to print yet. Um, but hopefully some of the things will calm down very soon and we can get the pictures back up. But I do have all of that. You taking the pictures out or do we? I'm sorry? You going to pick the pictures out or do we? Probably because... Based on past experience, sending pictures out to five people to get the five people to tell me which one they want before June, it's much easier for me to do it. Um, I can certainly send it to you and say, this is the one I'm going to use that way if you guys, I mean, and none of them are bad. I mean, there, there's, you know, certainly none of them are bad. Um, but, or, you know, individually and each one just stop by and you know look at your pictures we could do that um some things are just difficult i'm sure with, i was just kidding yeah i was just one yeah um but i mean if any of you wanted to next week to come by because i'm hoping to by the end of next week be able to order the prints get the, the photos on the website and um get that Let's see if you can find it out there. I got it. Um, um, okay, guys, I'm going to get all of you. Sounds good. Any questions or anything? Yes. Yes. Good to see you, Deb.